Hey there. This show is brought to you by listener support, by listeners who support at patreon.com slash TV. Thanks so much to everybody who has given so far. And if you are considering giving, thank you too. Uh, also, since we're starting up a new book, I want to remind you if you're going to get on the Wastelands train, um, stay away from trains in the Wastelands, I suppose would be one thing to say. Also, if you're buying it from Amazon, be it in physical, uh, electronic, or audio form, consider going to duckfeed.tv slash tip jar, where you can use our Amazon link uh, to purchase the book. And it uh, that results in a small portion of money coming to us. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It is just a way to support the show. So consider doing that. Um, this has been long enough. Let us talk about Rose Matter. <laughs> Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books uh, and related works. My name is Cole Ross, and I am your host tonight. And uh, tonight, I am joined by Autumn Greer. Delighted to be here. And by Evan Jones-Thorne. Uh, also delighted. Yeah, thank you so much for um, agreeing to hop on and talk about this very depressing, very upsetting book, specifically uh, Stephen King's Rose Matter, uh, which was released in 1995. Um, and boy, oh boy, does this come with a content warning if you are sensitive about domestic violence or any host of other, um, let's just say human failings. Um, because, uh, this, uh, it's, it's pretty intense human feelings on one particular character's part. Um, but yeah, this is a book that is about domestic violence and it actually ended a run of novels about abused women, um, uh, including like Gerald's game and Dolores Claiborne. And here we are talking about this because it is dark tower related. So I need to ask both of you, um, uh, whoever wants to uh, chime in first, do you have history with this book? I'd never heard of it. That was actually why I uh, I kind of wanted to do it because it was, I, I think, on the entire master list of, of books that you had planned to to cover for this show, uh, Rose Matter was the only one that I'd never even heard of before. Okay, so you came in fresh. Yeah, and uh, and and Autumn had you uh, had you read this before? I had not. I actually put off reading it because I was a huge fan of Dolores Claiborne. Uh, and as you said, they came out sort of close to each other. And I was like, okay, I've already got one battered wife book. I'm, I'm all full up here. But I have to say upon reading it, uh, and this is probably the first time I've ever been able to brag about this in my life, but I feel uniquely qualified to talk about this book. Okay. My um, my college major was animal and dairy production, so I basically majored in milking cows and you know raising animals for meat. Okay. And my my college minor was um, classical civilization, so I did a lot of Greek and Roman mythology and writing papers. So oh. I, it, it's the only time in my life everything is lined up. I like Stephen <laughs> King, I like moo cows, and I like Greeks and Romans. Oh yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I, uh, lines up. I perfectly. also took uh, I also took a bunch of. Uh, classical mythology classes uh, my degrees in english which is less uh less hands-on than uh cows but, oh, yeah um, um it, were he to have survived spoiler alert i could have planned a really nice ration for um <laughs> for the bull at the end of the book you know yeah <laughs> i also could have castrated him you know i mean i i have a lot of skills that have yeah. never come into play like they will for this podcast yeah he, he could probably use it too um <laughs> 
Who boy, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> that's good. And my 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 familiarity with uh, with with classical Greek stuff is from uh, pop culture and video games. So um, I'll get a bunch of stuff wrong. Um, but, well, I uh, I think in fairness, and Autumn, uh, let me know if you had the same kind of reaction. But Stephen King gets a lot of stuff wrong about Greek mythology, also. Yeah. Are you looking at my notes right now? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> 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 uh, there's a, the, there's there's a name that I definitely know is wrong, but uh, we will uh, we, we we will get to that. So why are we talking about this in a dark tower podcast? Not every Stephen King book relates to the tower, but this one does because it introduces some concepts um, that are going to be important later on, uh, and also names a place, which implies that at least part of this book takes uh, takes place in the world of Dark Tower or involves. Uh, characters who have been in Midworld. Um, so they mentioned the city of Lud, which we're going to talk about in the next season, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of this uh, alternate universe version of New York. It's like a, a post-apocalyptic, a post-apocalyptic kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> let's say Mad Max version of it. Um, and uh, it also um, includes some other things here. You know, there are parallel, parallel universes that are connected by an artifact uh, possibly to different levels of the tower, right? Um, and it introduces the notion of twinners, uh, which is a thing that's going to become a huge thing later. But it is a way that uh, Stephen King kind of explains why certain character archetypes uh, pop up in different places. One uh, important uh, kind of, I think, uh, example of twinners would be um, Jake Chambers with, uh, what's the name of the kid in The Shining? Oh, Danny Torrance. Yeah, with Danny Torrance, um, like in uh, between those two in The Shining and Doctor Sleep, like it's straight up said that they're twinners, right? Um, and so yeah, that's uh, that, that that is something that's gonna uh, pop up here. And then we having have a- not read Doctor Sleep yet, that's uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't include it on the list because it's it's relatively cursory. Um, the 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 way that the, the that they're linked up, but um, but yeah, it's 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 there. Um, oh, and there is a shape-shifting spider monster, uh, like our good friend It. <laughs> yeah, but that's at the very end of the book. We should, we probably should have said, yeah, we're going to talk about this whole book. It's going to be relatively breezy. Um, were, were there that's any the only time we're going to use that word to describe this book? Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um. So, were, were there any uh, Dark Tower connections that I missed in that overall kind of summary there that either of you picked up on? I would say that kind of top line, one thing, you know, and we will talk about later how some of the books like from Misery will show up in here. But there are just a lot of top line collection or connections that show that Stephen King's works kind of transcend. Like, you know, he mentions um, in Drawing of the Three, he had mentioned the wheelchair scene being filmed kind of like it looked to Eddie like Kubrick's The Shining. Right. Um, seeing Paul Sheldon's novels from the book Misery in this book, like mm-hmm. right off the bat. I mean, that that's one of her first um, uh, domestic violence incidents that we see as a reader is uh, her husband's honor case for having read Misery's Journey. Right. Yeah. So Stephen King likes yeah. to do that for for for, for observant readers. Um, yeah. There were even just a couple of other. Uh, little things that that kind of made me think of the dark tower and like you know the wheelchair there's a wheelchair that figures pretty prominently here Mm -hmm. norman talks about rosie being like a rare flower in a weedy vacant lot which uh Mm. you know that's some that's some dark tower symbolism 
It sure is. I I actually didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, and he he also doesn't feel like hearing any of that "Hey Jude" crap when he's in the car. Oh yeah. <laughs> there also is as a tie-in to the duck feed bundle at the very end of the book. Um, you know, in 1408, the the writer mentioned they did he did a writer's workshop with Jane Smiley, and that's actually one of the books that she's reading at the very end um, in her her life as a um, audiobook reader. Oh, huh. oh yeah. Yeah, that, that that's actually a good catch. <laughs> um, also, this is a, a super minor thing, but I thought it was interesting that he he made Rose uh, a southpaw, a left-handed person. Okay, and uh, Roland is kind of, you know, as we <laughs> um, at this point in the season know, an, an <laughs> involuntary southpaw, <laughs> involuntary and mandatory southpaw. I don't I don't know if there's any real significance there, uh, but uh, uh, the, it, it was something that jumped out at me. Her, her handedness uh, plays a role in the actual universe of the book. It's, it's, yeah, it's important. Yeah. Oh, it's it's certainly significant to the book. I just wasn't yeah. sure oh, if it okay. was like the fact that she and Roland both use their left hand. Yeah. Predominantly. Yeah, I could see that. that yeah, that might that might not be a thing. But, uh, <laughs> I've, I but, find but there it is. The deeper that I get into reading these books and listening to the podcasts, like when when all you have is um, a cohesive dark tower theory, everything starts to look like a nail. You, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, you would not believe the math that I did throughout this novel. I finally did find two places where I could make numbers add up to 19. And, and it's, it's one of those things. I've never met the man, but I'm pretty sure if you asked Stephen King if that was, if, if that was intentional, he would just say, well, do you want it to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he might not he might not actually acknowledge the book because he doesn't much care for it um yeah i saw that as well yeah he, he talks about it like he's very honest with his opinion about his own work he's honest about a lot of things in on writing um but he straight up says like both this and insomnia uh he calls them um gosh stiff trying too hard novels which i could see that with this one but it it kind of surprised me to hear that he views insomnia that way as well. I've I've not read insomnia. Um, yeah, it, stiff is not a word that I would associate with it. I don't think it, with it, this one, it, it it does feel very stilted at times. Yeah, what what he's specifically referring to is when he talks about his process of writing, he doesn't like to plot things out. Um, he just kind of he, he places this emphasis on character and situation and kind of lets that um, kind of dictate what's going to happen. He you know, he works from a loose outline and, you know, just kind of makes a lot of decisions on the fly, which um, on one hand leads to some very good and inventive and unpredictable stuff. On the other hand, leads to books that do not end really great, uh, which is the thing that bothers a lot of people doesn't particularly bother me but eh, you know you can you can see the connection at the very yeah. least yeah um you know you yeah. know that makes it really ironic that the book that he chose to put in from his universe is the misery series of books that mm-hmm. the author of those also did not like <laughs> that's pretty good yeah it's um i, I don't know I, I really like how honesty is about his relationship with this stuff like when he, you can just come out and say like yep i wrote with insomnia like a a a thousand, you know, eleven hundred pages of stuff that just doesn't work, and even like does a sick burn on it in universe later on in book seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, but yeah. So, and this is a really tightly plotted book. Um, it it moves 
pretty quickly and it's pretty intricate in the way that things will pop up and serve as, you know, either MacGuffins or Chekhov's guns or other kinds of narrative devices uh, as it goes, because it kind of tells the same story um, twice between these two characters in different ways and kind of plays off of the connection between them. You know, I thought that the very first 14 pages of the book were, you know, obviously there's some really graphic material. I was sick to my stomach at some times. But like you're saying, I mean, he just touches on everything. We see Wendy Yarrow's name. We see some uh, bull-related language, like her husband being like an animal. We see a lot of kind of visual horror, kind of like The Shining, um, Mm -hmm. when he references the blood gravy. You know, kind of like seeing um, in the Kubrick film, those doors opening up. I mean, it's extremely graphic. But I, like you said, it, it, it's tight. I mean, it, it, it hits little moments that are going to be through throughout the book. Like, I think even at the end of um, this first little prologue, it talks about how Rose slept within her husband's madness for nine more years, which is such a reference to a labyrinth. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it, it's good. It's tough to read, but it's it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, um, you know. It's 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 tough, <laughs> right? I agree that this is this is actually a a, a really good and engaging book. Uh, it has an effect. Yeah, let's let, let's let's save that uh, for, for for later on. I, I like this because it is uh, uncharacteristic for him, and like just a it made every, it made every detail seem to matter more than you would usually get in a lot of his other books, right? I, I will say for anybody that is kind of on the fence that might be listening to the podcast, if they're thinking about not reading it, the f- the first 14 pages of this prologue is where the bulk of the, the sickening violence happens. After that, it's just Rose dealing with her memories, which is the case for any abuse survivor. I mean, uh, there's not a moment really that Rose gets hurt or harmed in any way again. And in fact, it's it's really kind of empowering to watch the journey that she goes on and I have to say, you're so bullish on Rose at the end of the book, and I mean, there's such appropriate comeuppances. It it, it is kind of satisfying in its conclusion, even if it gets off to a really rocky start. Yeah, Yeah, and I I honestly, I I was thinking about mentioning that as well, and I I think that if this is something that you're really concerned about, uh, you can probably skip straight to chapter one. If you skip Mm. the prologue, you'll catch up pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah, that, that's a uh, or, or if you're concerned about it, like it, it's right on front street on page one. Go to go to Amazon and read like the sample from the Kindle version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that this book is worth reading. Um, it's it's definitely not my favorite Stephen King book or my favorite um, my, my favorite anything really. But there, it's it's definitely a, a book I'm glad to have read. Yeah. I, I find this all the time. I'm never, no matter what character, like, I guess, whomever's mind we're occupying at the time, I, even if the character's kind of problematic, I am never less empathetic after reading e- even, I guess, the most problematic Stephen King novel. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and this one gets pretty problematic with, uh, with, 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 with Norman. Um, yeah. Can we talk about Norman a little bit? Uh, <laughs> let's let, let's talk about that in the prologue because uh, that's the, the, that's going to come a little bit later. I've got one more detail to to to, to hit here. Normally, I don't so I like to, to. Oh no, that's fine. Didn't normally, mean to jump ahead. Normally, here. I don't like to be a slave too much of to the outline, but I want to make sure that this gets out. Um, the audiobook for this is actually really good. Um, it's read by Blair Brown, and then Stephen King taps in for the uh, for the portions of the book that are heavy on Norman. 
Um, oh, that so, would be good. Yeah. So St- Stephen King's voice is super creepy. <laughs> this is the, so it's weird. Be, like this is before his voice got really creepy. Um, like if you listen to some of his later audiobooks, like it, it, his his voice is aging like really spooky wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, like that that is that is how I uh, consumed this, and it was I think better because I could m- maybe maybe uh, uh, kind of mm, let's just shift focus when some of the weird stuff was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So yeah, um, let's jump right in and talk about the, kind of this establishing moment between between Rosie and 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 Norman because the book begins with Rosie uh, sitting by a window in great pain, and the thing that has happened is um, she. Well, has, I think I think I think it's actually significant that it 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 opens with with Rose sitting by the window, not Rosie. She's not Rosie yet. Oh yes, there we go. Thank you. Um, yes, because <laughs> that is hugely significant, and that's one of my favorite parts of this book. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so yes, what she decides to call herself. Uh, can you go into some de- de- detail about that right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, she's at, at the beginning of the book. We we meet her as Rose Daniels, and as the book goes on, she leaves the life of Rose Daniels behind. And she reverts to her maiden name, which is uh, McClendon, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah, McClendon. Yeah. Uh, but even beyond that, she decides to start going by Rosie, mm. which uh, I, I I think it said she hadn't ever really gone by before. But mm. she she wanted to be different. Yeah, she wanted to have and, a, a new name for her new life. Yeah. And uh, I, I really I, I really like interesting naming conventions in books and uh the significance of names in yeah. as as a literary device and so kind of the being able to kind of come in and see rose and then watch the i'm not sure what word i'm looking for here but kind of watch the uh the inception of rosie and watch her development and growth as yeah. a character is extremely satisfying by the end of the book and you you kind of realize that, uh, you know, it's it's kind of corny because it's right there in in the text. But uh, <laughs> she's she's been really rosy the whole time, mm-hmm. and she just didn't know it because uh, because Norman's such a fucking fuck. Yeah, yeah. So the, is, the go, go ahead. This is the only time I can say, probably out of any of Stephen King's books, that I've said to myself, "Man, I wish that Detta Walker was here." <laughs> Yeah. I, I, wish, I wish old Detta would roll up because, I mean, there's a moment, I think, even when Rose thinks, like, if I had a knife, I could stab him. But that's not even an idea that she would let herself consider. Right. Detta would have stabbed him about 35 times by now. She'd still be stabbing him. <laughs> yeah. I kept hoping that Gert was going to wind up being uh, like like Detta's twin. And <laughs> unfortunately, Gert wound up being way too awesome and likable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gert is so good. Gert's, Gert's, Gert's awesome, yeah. but uh, yeah. I, I definitely had some hopes that she would wind up being not great in the best sort of way. My my absolute favorite moment in the prologue, um, and I, it's a funny thing to say after the, the context, because in the prologue, um, 
because of the abuse, uh, he is, the husband has triggered a, a miscarriage in Rose, and he's kind of making these platitudes to her. He's eating a sandwich while he's calling 911. But I love it when he says, like, you can have another kid, a girl or a boy. The flavor doesn't matter. <sighs> when, he, when he says, if it's a boy, we'll get him a little baseball suit. If it's a girl, I don't know, a bonnet or something. You wait and see. It'll happen. <laughs> like, he, he so fundamentally hates women. He's like, I don't know. What, what are you broads like? Yeah. Upon it. Yeah. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing to get for a girl. Like, yeah. yeah. So, 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 so Norman is, 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 is Rose's abusive husband. Um, there, there's another great detail. Like there's nobody that Norman doesn't hate. Um, he's a, he's a, he's a police officer, uh, which is not related to that previous statement, but it, it is something that makes him uniquely terrifying as a villain specifically because he knows how to use the law, uh, to his advantage. Right. That is, yeah. you know, uh, and he's uniquely and terrifying. He's, he's incredibly smart and incredibly good at his job. Yes. And also completely unhinged. Oh, yeah. Like he starts is, unhinged and like the, 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 the door blows about, let's say, five blocks over um, <laughs> by like a yeah. third of the way through the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, and, and out of all the guys in the world to have a little bit of touch of the shining, you know, a little bit of a sixth sense. Why did it have to be this guy? <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing because he like, you know, his, his whole detective technique is to walk around and become that person. Right. And he thinks that it's just kind of a combination of, you know, heightened intuition and then just, you know, detectives training or whatever. Um, but Rose also has this, too. They're psychically they're psychically linked and they don't even know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, this is kind of getting ahead a little bit, but I, I really I really enjoy that uh, Norman's process for, for getting inside someone's head and becoming someone else. He calls it trolling, mm -hmm. but this book was written in 1995. <laughs> and so it was a reference to like, like fishing, right? Which, which totally makes sense. But if you, if you read this book in 2017 and he's trolling, it has a whole other level of significance. That's super, super interesting and yeah. completely unintentional on King's part. Yeah, it's a it's it's a little bit of like backwards relevance. Yeah. One thing that I was wondering, and I was wondering if you guys could help me out, with the exception of maybe Sheriff Alan Pangborn, um, in some of the like uh, Castle Rock novels, mm -hmm. have we ever seen a positive portrayal of a police officer in a Stephen King novel? Uh, we get one later on in the book, who ends up being a little bit more, um, a little bit more um, sympathetic. Specific, yeah. specifically because he wants to he wants to buck that trend and that portrayal um you can yeah, probably make a case officer hale is that the green green mile guy um is he oh no i can't remember if no. that's the green mile guy or not yeah, i can't remember the name of tom hanks's character from the green mile but if you consider okay. a corrections officer to be uh you know to, to, to be no, law was, enforcement yeah i was thinking um officer hale from the end of uh like the end part of this book oh Okay. Yeah. 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 I, th I thought that's what you were referring to. Oh yeah, in, in the offhand thing, like looking looking later on in this. Yeah, I was I was I was thinking about other other books. Yeah, uh, Stephen King doesn't have a not like I mean there there's a book that we're going to talk about later on in the series, uh, Desperation, which is about a cop who goes nuts. <laughs> But I mean, a lot of these books, like the library police or the times that the police kind of start colluding with people in town, like under the dome. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, it's there's a lot of um, it's a lot of negative portrayals of the, the police. Yeah, it's and, um, 
it, it's 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 especially effective here, you know, because like this is one of the scariest books I've read, and Norman is one of the scariest villains, and this is not explicitly a horror novel for a large amount of its run, right? Like there, like there's a part of it that is, you know, just like a grounded story of a person getting out from a terrible place. And there's these yeah. extended metaphors and stuff like, the, I, don't, I don't know. I feel ridiculous with the way this book ends, calling it not supernatural. But like, well, that, it, like that's not on Front Street for, at all. For the first, the first half of the book, it's not. Yeah. Like nothing, nothing even remotely supernatural happens until you get more than halfway through. Yeah. And you. You mentioned him I, as a, a villain. He is absolutely my most terrifying Stephen King character ever. I mean, even with oh, hands down, <laughs> something like it. I mean, just don't go to Derry and you'll be fine. <laughs> like, yeah, just just don't go there. Yeah, but just, I mean, just Norman not... can be anywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, like there, 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 there is something supernatural, right? He's got a touch of The Shining. Um, but yeah, like, like there, there are a lot of ways and a lot of things that, you know, if somebody else had these traits and these values or lack thereof, um, they, like, they could be, uh, you know, a realistic, you know, kind of thing. Like, as, as like I mentioned before, he hates everybody. If, if, if it's possible to look down on a minority or a, uh, or, or you know, or a vulnerable person, he will like, there's a, there, oh, I, there, oh, I learned. I learned new offensive terms from this book. Yeah, Same. I, I had to look this up because they're talking about this uh, the, this woman who who he killed over the course of an investigation. Yeah. Uh, Wendy Wendy Yarrow, who ends up being really important, like he just knocked on the wrong door and she put up a fuss and you know, he killed him. Uh, the, he he calls her a high yellow woman, which I guess is a very like discredited term for talking about a mixed race person or a light skinned uh, uh, black person. Yeah, like. I I'd never come across that before, but it's uh, yeah. it's a thing. Yeah, uh, and I'm sorry if I offended you by just flippantly saying that outdated term, but like like that like that is Norman, and those are those are the that that's the way that he views the world. When he has to come up with the name of a fictional woman later on, he just combines the names of his favorite porn stars. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, my my absolute favorite term that he comes up with is at one point, and this is way later in the book, but since we're on this topic, when he's talking about the um, uh, the the women's group, uh, sisters and daughters, the the shelter that Rose goes to eventually, and he calls them the Mouska cunts. Oh, <laughs> it just seems like the it's like such a Disney reference, but yeah, Mickey Mouse and his Mouska cunts, yeah. which it just it, it tickled me to death in just a way where I mean he's so repellent, but yeah. What, yeah. a, what a creative wordsmith he is for for hating women and minorities. <laughs> yeah, but it's that that one that one stuck out to me too because uh, it's ridiculous and also because it's it's not actually clever. It's oh, like no. like it it seems it's it's one of those things where it's like it seems like you can tell Norman thinks it's very clever and mm -hmm. he's being super smart, but yeah, it's like oh no, you're you're just awful yeah and, and just you, and the you, worst person and you probably know somebody who has who has operated on that level and or in our, you know i know i did yeah <laughs> like you know growing up in the midwest like it's a it's a it's a thing you know yeah Blah. yeah none of none of none of them had the shinning fortunately <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah. I, i'm happy somebody else called the shinning because i always call it that by by, by accident um so Wait. so good Oh, I was just gonna say that that's that's the only redeeming thing about Norman is that he really is for the for the outside reader looking in, he's like a bigot Mad Libs. <laughs> yeah, 
he, he really is. I'm laughing like that's laudatory, but like, oh um, you know, if if he was not, you know, just a little bit unhinged in a kind of entertaining way, like this would just be a very depressing story about something that happens every single day. The more outsized he gets, like the way this book ends. Have either of you seen the the, the movie Hostel Two? No. No. Oh, okay. Um, if you're thinking like, oh, hostile, isn't that the torture porn kind of thing? The first one is. The second one, um, the women who are taken to the, you know, the, the Eastern European torture warehouse or whatever, they break out and they decide to get their revenge. So, like, it is this dueling story about these two rich American fucks who pay money to potentially kill these women. And, like, they turn turn the tables and, oh. like... It would, you know, it's it's it fantastically uh, satisfying. This reaches those kind of levels because no matter how bad Norman gets, like he, uh, you know, he more than he doesn't more than pay for it because he really, you know, whatever he he, he is humiliated and, and debased in really satisfying ways <laughs> throughout the rest of this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the, 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 there are two kind of instigating things for this, you know, he, he, he hits her and she has a miscarriage. Um, and that is obviously a terrible thing. This is early on in their, in their marriage. And, you know, things have gotten worse since the Wendy Yarrow, uh, k- kind of incident. And so she stays with him. She lives in his madness for, you know, a full nine years until she sees a spot of blood when she's making the bed on she sees it on her pillow and realizes hey he's going to kill me so i need to get out of here like the, well I, it's good he's he's going to kill me or worse maybe he won't oh yeah which like that's that was kind of the point where like right off the bat like you get a very clear understanding of just how bad this is yes yeah, like she just like it is something that kind of like shocks her out of, you know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to use this negative word here and obviously it's more compl- complicated but complacency, right? Like it gets her it gets her yeah. to stop being kind of passive when it comes to deciding her own fate in this, right? So like she decides to get out. Like she doesn't even really think about it. She doesn't carry anything with her. She just grabs the bank card and and then goes to the bus station. Um, and this bank card becomes like a talisman for for for, for Norman. He like, I was gonna say, is there is there is there in any other instance of there being a bank card that's like totemized like this? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like, like, I've been I've been racking my brain since I started reading this book, trying to figure out if that's like referential somehow. Uh, okay, so when did the movie Blank Check come out? <laughs> <laughs> i'm I'm not i'm not sure but i'm pretty sure that richie rich came out when i was about seven okay so uh yeah oh that that dastardly john Lyricat. so around the same time that this book came out oh man this book was based on richie rich oh boy it's a it's a a a pre yeah that's that's way too dark to even joke about yeah yeah i'm uh, I'm regretting that immediately as soon as i said it yeah for for, forgive us for laughing we can we kind of we kind of have to but, yeah, otherwise this would be the most bummer of bummer episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome to the sad cast with the, with with the three sad friends. <laughs> 
um yeah but like you know she doesn't even like keep it and run you know like like run it down she takes 350 bucks which is barely enough to get as far away as she needs to go but he like in this act of the you know lacking total psychological self-awareness like everything becomes about this bank card all of his rage and fury and you know the questions that he's asking about why did i miss this and all that like it all goes back to this bank card to the point where he's like walking around this town um and it always comes up (laughs) and he even says that the 350 dollars that she took is total bullshit right but he it's the card. like even later when he's um spending god knows how much on wheelchairs and haircuts and that type of thing to 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 sneak around unnoticed i mean he's like the bank card the bank card well he's probably dropped like four grand on this (laughs) murder elaborate murder fantasy yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's it's all about the principle like he he even like like you said he says it uh that that the the money wasn't important it's about how dare she right like it's it's simultaneously all about that and not not about that at all yeah and i, I think that's that's something that's uh i've i've known bad crazy people that think that way and that's mm-hmm. part of what made norman so unbelievably fucking terrifying yeah i i think that the slow progression on norman too because you start off and you're like okay i've got a wife beating asshole and they're they make this sort of comments where he's are statements where he's rationalized these things like mm-hmm. oh face fit face hitting is for drunken assholes like the kind that i arrest like you know that's why i punched yeah. my wife in the back and the kidneys like he's made these distinctions in his mind but there's a point where she mentions that oh she has a bite mark because norman loved to bite yeah and i i didn't really put it all together at the time but there is something very broken in biters like we see that in all forms of media i mean mm-hmm. you, you you see it with that creepy guy um in the pit in game of the game of thrones series yeah. I, I remember um being sent home from school with a note because a, a kid named danny Galt- galtney bit me Oh, um, in, in kindergarten, and my mom lost it. Like she, yeah. I, she was calling him a little animal, and I mean, you know, he's a five-year-old kid. Uh, some kids right. bite, but I mean, there's this, I think, sort of cultural shame and less than human sort of thing that we associate it with. It like when you hear that someone bites, you're somehow disgusted. You know? Yeah. Well, it's like uh, it's, it's like Hannibal Lecter. You know, yeah. he's like that mask yeah. makes him into you know a terrifying skull-faced monster. But like he has that for a very real reason. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a very real reason by which I mean they put it on him in the movie because that was a character <laughs> like, you know, because because he was a bite risk. Right. You, you know, yeah. I, I was I was kind of laughing to myself. I, I have to imagine that the reason that as humans were so like, uh, I guess we have poor biters is, um, man, we put so many of each other's appendages in our mouths and everything. Like, <laughs> people, people need to be really careful. You know, <laughs> yep, it's uh... <laughs> like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> There's some basic trust here. We don't need any biters around, okay? Yeah, we need to select against this right quick. Yeah. Oh. That's a very good point. Oh, man. Uh, my skin's crawling. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the other thing about Norman, like, after we learn about how just kind of brutal he is as a person um, and, and how nuts he goes when, when Rose takes the bank card is that the next thing that happens is he gets sidetracked from tracking her down because he's busy becoming a hero cop. Oh yeah. He's which, he's a golden which boy. Which makes him and that's 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 the point where you kind of realize it's like, okay, this is not just some abusive asshole. Like this is this is some kind of next level. And you don't really know how many next levels of crazy there are yet, but yep. it's that's where you kind of start to see how bad it 
is going to get. Yeah. And just like, you know, it, it doesn't have to relate to domestic violence, but any kind of cop who's doing something wrong, uh, you know, that is inherently scary. Like it is, it is a kind of, you know, social horror because, you know, who is going to believe you because they are the, you know, like the system is, you know, aligned with them and they know how to navigate the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I'm trying not to make a, a, a real political statement, but like you see it in the book, like he uses his connections to like track people yeah. down. He, he uses that as a smokescreen to stay to, you know, to, to stay above reproach. And, you know, when he starts killing people in the book, that is not the first time that he kills people because, yeah. you know, there's a long history of him biting people to death behind grain silos that is alluded to later on. And, and tracking back to what I said before, I think at the beginning, I thought he was just a wife beating asshole. And can you slowly start to realize that he is insane? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. he is he is not a wife beating asshole. He is a more than that. He is a monster. And again, like we said before, he's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to the point where when when Rosie finally talks to the police, like very late in the book, and she says, like, his name is Norman Daniels. He's my husband. He's a police detective. He's insane. Like, that seems like the understatement of <laughs> King's entire bibliography. Like, <laughs> like, that doesn't even begin to cover it at that point. Yeah. But here he is. He makes a huge, uh, a, a huge drug bust, you know, at the height of the war on drugs, you know, but like takes down a crack cocaine ring. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, he's kind of above reproach. But the focus leaves him for a little bit, you know, and goes on to Rose herself. Right. Um, where she goes to this Midwestern city like she like she goes to a bus stop and says, like, she doesn't say, hey, here's where I want to go. She says, like, what is the soonest bus that leaves? Right. And how far does it go? <laughs> right. So she ends up going 800 miles away to, you know, to go to a city by a lake in, a, you know, in, in the Midwest, which is implied to be like Chicago or Milwaukee or. Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty clearly Chicago. Yeah. The, uh, I, the, the, the picnic at the end of the book that that happens at Navy Pier. <laughs> Let's they call it Ettinger's Pier, but it's. Yeah, it's I live in Chicago. It's Navy Pier. <laughs> Autumn. Oh, I was, I was just going to say the fun thing about her when she goes to the bus station, because the bus station seems like something, I, I don't know, out of like Transmetropolitan or something yeah. like there's there's people with like um, goiters and like I mean, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's just like the bus station probably is. But <laughs> I, I like that she has a little um, bright red scarf on. Um, like, mm. I mean, she's a total red, white riding hood going into the big bad wolves, oh, yeah. the, the, the big bad forest um, running away from the big bad wolf. You know, yeah. I mean, she she even has the little kerchief on her head. Mm -hmm. And and that, that ends up working against her because that helps people recognize her like she knows all these things that Norma is going to do. But uh, even still, she is not able to uh, to catch them all. And um, when she runs into the guy that's playing three card Monty. I've actually never seen this in person. I'm like, is this New York City in 1910 that she's trying to catch a bus in? Like, have you ever seen somebody doing like a like a shell game or a card game like in life? Or is that just like like that happens in like newsies, right? Yeah, yeah I was like, gonna say like, did somebody like walk up and offer to her some papes? 
Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know how you would set up a three card Monty uh, game. You might as well like start cooking meth on the street. Yeah, like <laughs> first I got to bring my table, then yeah. my three cards. You know, <laughs> I got to go down to the church and check out one of the card tables. <laughs> uh, got to get my permit. <laughs> my table permit. Make, make, make sure everything's above board, yeah. as as all three card Monty dealers do. <laughs> I'm trying to go legit. <laughs> I guess going legit would just be like what going to work at a casino. I... Yep, not playing three card Monty at the bus stop. Yeah, and there's there's one moment in here. I think for some reason in my head, I assume that Rose is a lot older than she is. And she talks about, like, um, how she's going to use the name of her best friend, like, when she's about to book a ticket. She just makes up a name, Mm -hmm. and she's talking about her friend from junior high. It's really hard to remember that she hasn't done anything. Like, she literally graduated high school, started dating this monster in high school, and she's had literally no life, no experience, nothing. It's just moving right from prom to being beaten routinely. Yeah. Oh, and the, I mean, and it's, this this feels really elementary, so I'm sorry if I'm saying something obvious, but, like, isolation is a huge part of abuse, right? Yeah. Like, you know, she has been, you know, she, she has been kept, you know. Uh, she, she she has been sheltered and and, yeah. and, and, and all that. The only the only thing that she's really been exposed to is the, the side of police officers that Norman thrives in. Just yeah. to kind of engender that that fear and distrust of the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But she gets to let's just say Chicago, so we're not um, <laughs> so, so we're not being uh, too, too vague. Um, and she, you know, gets guidance to this um, to this women's shelter from a man named uh, Peter Slowick uh, at the bus station. Um, and this is a place called Daughters and Sisters. And this is where that shelter kind of starts opening up because, like, she meets friends. She meets helpful people who have her best interests in mind, who want to help her grow and heal. Yeah, which is new for her, and she's kind of understandably mistrustful of it at first, but uh, it's real. (laughs) But on on the way to the shelter... It is, again, like Little Red Riding Hood in the the big scary woods. I mean, a pregnant lady tells her to basically screw off. Um, (laughs) Like, she's just asking for directions, and everybody in the city is mean. Mm -hmm. And there's that one guy who is, I I guess, just the creepiest guy ever. The, hey, baby, want to do the dog? Oh, you're the guy just, like, hanging out the window? Yeah, yeah, just just yelling at women, and I, I I guess on the one hand, at least he's asking cons- for consent. He's not like, <laughs> I'm gonna do the dog with you, baby. Like, <laughs> also, uh, do the dog, uh, sir? Are you asking like to do some kind of animal based dance? Yeah, like you want to get four on the floor? That does actually sound a little bit like dancing. That sounds Maybe, pretty yeah, that sounds kind of fun. Actually, he was offering that woman lessons. Maybe I had them all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he should have. I mean, he needs to work on a sales pitch because he 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 scarred Rosie. Like she keeps having like hallucinations of him. You know, as the as as the uh, book goes along, like the this be- just, <laughs> just a nice misunderstood man. <laughs> he just wanted to help. Uh, he did not want to help. That is not an accurate statement at all. No, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of fun here. Um, <sighs> Man, we're, we're trying. Oh, God. 
and I, I did want to call out one other thing, um, and, and I'm going to add this to my reasons that I'll never be a first lady list. Um, I wanted to mention the part where someone had written in graffiti, suck my AIDS infected cock. Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you see a lot of graffiti in these Stephen King novels, especially in The Dark Tower. Um, you see a lot of graffiti in The Stand. And then in Dark Tower 5, I mean, there is a ton of bango skank and um, different forms of graffiti. And one thing I was surprised at in this book, too, is how often Stephen King mentions AIDS. It seems to be almost like a juvenile type of thing. Like, you know how um, a couple of years ago everyone was like, oh, I hope you get Ebola. I don't mm-hmm. know if AIDS was still such a uh, – I in, mean – In 1995, it was yeah. still pretty scary. And and absolutely. I'm just surprised at how much um, AIDS comes up in a lot of Stephen King novels. Yeah. It's a, um, it's a, it's a real factor in uh, like book six of The Dark Tower. Yeah, I, I think – I, I think that just he he kind of wrote a lot of books when that was one of the scariest things in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of what I've always chalked it up to. Like, you know, you can like like you said, you, you can replace it with Ebola or SARS or whatever is currently scary and real in the world, but mm-hmm. when they were written it was it was AIDS and that's uh it that's still pretty scary yeah. yeah oh absolutely but she she sees this graffiti more than once she's reminded of it later in the book or she visualizes it again and it just does remind me a lot in the dark tower of how often in new york we see graffiti written everywhere yeah. currently yeah. yeah i was almost surprised that none of the the dark tower graffiti was mirrored in this book oh the the, the band their friend bango skink didn't pop up yeah <laughs> yeah like I, I really thought, like, just, you know, because this was on the list of books to read for Radio Free Midworld, I, mm. I thought that there would be maybe a little bit more of an overt connection. Mm-hmm. But uh, you got to work a little bit harder to find it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's there. Well, we'll, we'll get to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about some of these some of these people that she meets, um, starting with Ann Stevenson, the uh, the the person who runs the uh, who runs the shelter. There's kind of an establishing. No, I mean, it's not establishing, but there's an important moment with her where like Ann admits that like she reads the same kinds of books that Rosie that, that, that Rose does. And, uh, you know, like even says, like, you probably think I run this shelter because, you know, somebody close to me or I was I was beat. But. You know, nope, I just inherited it from my family. I think it's a good cause. Like, things happen for reasons in these books, you know, and there's comfort in that. Things don't happen for a reason, you know, out, outside of them, right? I, I like that they set it up when she first meets Anne, that Anne reminds Rosie of Beatrice Arthur um, from, <laughs> from Golden Girls. Yep. Because think about it. If you're going to go to a shelter and you're scared and you don't know what's going on, who would you rather see besides Maude from Golden Girls? <laughs> yep, I, I'll take Maude. Yeah, help me, Mod. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very safe with Mod. Oh my gosh! Like I, I wish she was my friend in real life. Like I mean, either yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like Anne ends up being super helpful. Like she gets Rosie a job, you know, and like helps her recover because like Rose is very much in a in a in a bad physical state when she arrives. Like her kidneys are so beat. And her back is so messed up that she can't even really do work for a prolonged amount, amount of time, right? Yeah, can't even stand for extended periods. Yeah. 
and you know like like quite literally gets her get, get, gets her back on her feet uh there's pam uh who ends up not being that huge of a figure in the book but just like a sounding board for uh for for rose and you know for somebody who's never had a best friend since you know forever ago that's important there's uh there, there, there's cynthia who's kind of like a like a grunge punk girl um who ends up you know being noteworthy later on and then our, our good friend gert gertrude oh, <laughs> gert's the best yeah absolutely <laughs> so, so gertrude uh she stops by the uh the shelter and teaches self-defense classes like later on said like in, you know not you know it, it's you know not to help them save their lives but to teach them a sense of control right over their bodies over 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 everything which is i think an, an, an important distinction yeah. um most notably she, also she is physically imposing um in <laughs> in a tremendous in a tremendous kind of way uh she is described as resembling um uh oh gosh uh the refrigerator the uh i, yeah. I, I forget the, william perry yeah william perry w william the friend the refrigerator perry um you know very, fun, very fun fun side note uh when i was a baby william the refrigerator perry rocked me to sleep at a party <laughs> that's awesome that's why i remember his name <laughs> wow <laughs> that's a good story that really yeah, my, is yeah. yeah i i wish i remembered it yeah uh my i guess my parents some of my parents' friends were friends with him, and uh -huh. my parents brought me to a party, and he was there, and I guess he was, like, <laughs> the the biggest, nicest person, and I uh, I was kind of fussy, and he offered to take me, and, like, I fell asleep while he was holding me. Yeah, because you knew you were being held by a legend. <laughs> I, yeah. So do that's, think, uh, do you that's think the coolest just... thing that's ever happened in my life, and I was uh, <laughs> it's just been downhill for 29 years. Oh, jeez. Do you think he said it just like that Eddie Murphy or not Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor skit where he was talking about refrigerator and he was like, give me the ball. Like, you think he said, give me the God, ball. I hope so. <laughs> give me the baby. Oh, my God, give me I the hope boy. so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, and I've uh, never wondered about that, but now I can't stop wondering about that. <laughs> But, but 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 Gert is a really good person to have on your side, um, you know, and it's especially, you know, it's 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 noteworthy because she is also a black woman um, and you know that she is going to, you know, meet in conflict with uh, with Norman, you know, like it like just from the from the moment she steps up as the self-defense person, you know, like trying to teach Rosie how to how to take down somebody who's much bigger than her, you know, like, oh, this is going to get real. Yeah. And <laughs> spoiler alert, it's the best conflict. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so, uh, so so those are kind of some of the key players. Um, do we have um, or are there any are there any more, uh, you know, kind of thoughts on those people you know the the kind of the cast of supporting characters from the uh from the house one thing i was surprised at with Anne is they set her up right from the beginning as being um a little bit like they i think they describe her as preening slightly like she's kind of bragging she's very self-aware self-involved um kind of overconfident which really foreshadows how she is overconfident later in the novel when she has her encounter with norman yeah yeah i mean I I think later in the book when she has that, she's thinking of the, the time profile that they're going to do of her and how amazing she's going to look on the, the cover and how humble she's going to be, uh, which um, anytime you're thinking about how humble you're going to be, <laughs> you, you know, like yeah. that's probably that's yeah. probably a good, um, good, good moment to think if I'm thinking about being humble, yeah. am I really? Oh, no, the author's going to kill me, aren't they? 
<laughs> At the same time, though, she that that was a not to get way, way, way ahead of ourselves, but um, she that was like kind of a, a private fantasy that she was not proud of. Mm. So there's like that's very much who she is, but she's also self-aware yeah. enough to not let that be all she is. Yeah, I, I, I really I really liked Anne's character and I same her. Yeah. <laughs> The way that her arc ended was one of the things that was the most unsatisfying for me about this book. Yeah, there, I, there, there was no reason for it to end the way it did. Yeah, I did. I did like it when she said as well that it was Providence that brought you here. Providence with a capital P, because mm-hmm. I mean, that not that what you would call Ka in Chicago? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that Ka comes up. Yeah. So they yeah. Add, add, add that one into the list. Yeah. It's a, so yeah, she, she is a very proud woman, but you know, she's not like a, 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 a like a Miles Gloriosa's kind of figure. You know, she's not Zap Brannigan. How, how's that for classics? <laughs> huh? Look at me. I flexed. Um, but yeah, she, she does concrete good in a lot of women's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's, um, uh, move on to, I think one of the, again, this is a series of incident instigating moments that work up to these multiple payoffs because Rosie, you know, on the road to getting her own uh, apartment decides, okay, I'm going to go to this pawn shop and see what my wedding ring is worth. Just kind of entertaining the notion because Norman, um, has told her, oh, that thing is, uh, it's, it's a, it's a new car or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was that or a new car. Like if you're out in public, <laughs> turn it, turn the stone to the inside of your palm. Yeah. Um, and wah, wah, yep. It's cubic zirconia, uh, near yeah. worthless. Yep. Because, because of course it is. Yeah. So, yeah. but the, but, the, but the pawn shop is run, uh, by, by, by a man named Bill Steiner, um, and, and his father, um, and he's willing to work with her. So it's like, yeah, you know, I can, I can give you, you know, probably something like what, 50 bucks. But while, while she's, uh, while she's in the, uh, in the store, she spots a painting. Um, and this painting is described as being almost hilariously bad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll lay out the basics of what's of what's in here because the subject matter of the of the painting is is, is actually really important. It shows a, a woman facing away from the frame, looking um, kind of down a hill or you know down into a uh, uh, a temple that is kind of at this weird off perspective. Uh, this is a blonde woman whose hair is kind of in a big braid, and she is wearing a uh, kind of a toga, like a like like a rough dress that is a color rose matter. And in fact, the word Rose Matter is written on the back of this, but that has no bearing on Rosie herself. She doesn't see that. This calls out to her with a, like like a wonderful uh, – <laughs> I, I love the way they describe this. Like lots of paintings are, you know, mouths without tongues. This is a mouth with a tongue. It can speak and it calls to her, uh, you know, the, that you know, she has to buy it. Which is a very, very interesting analogy uh, when you get to the end of the book. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, I don't know about the tongue, but there's teeth. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, 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 there's a mouth that winds up without a tongue by the end of the, uh, the yeah. Yeah. when it's all said and done. <laughs> you're, yep. You're right. I really <laughs> Spoiler like Spoiler alert. I really like the provenance on the painting too. I mean, I, I grew up in the eBay and Craigslist generation and I've never actually been to a pawn shop. Oh yeah. 
And I, I have a lot of respect for, I mean, that's a skill set that I don't have. Like I strike out all the time when I watch the prices, right? <laughs> I don't have a good sense for telling how much something costs and then what I could also sell it for. Mm-hmm. Um, so just going through the pawn shop in general, when they're estimating her ring, when they're doing the swap for the painting, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed that Bill seems to know his, his business so well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a family business. So he probably grew up in it. Like he specifically like is working not to piss off his dad. <laughs> you know, he, he like he even does, you know, it's, it's obvious that he likes her because he makes the rookie mistake of telling her what it's actually worth at retail. Says, yeah. hey, it's worth two hundred, but I can't actually give that to you. You, you don't say that. Come on, man. <laughs> That's yeah. bush league. There's a, a nice little moment in there too, because we we did see Anna, who's very proud of, or Anna who's very proud of her what she's doing for these women and everything. There's a moment where he, Bill's looking at her and he thinks that she might be uncomfortable about something, so he makes sure to answer very simply so that he doesn't kind of throw her off. Um, he just simply nods. This is the first person we've actually seen in the book who really considered her feelings. Yeah. Like to every, everybody else, she's just another battered woman or she's just something to batter. But he's the first person that we've actually seen see her, consider her, and temper his reactions based on her. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't I didn't notice that. That's that is a really good point. Yeah. And 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 that describes him kind of to a T because, you know, yeah. he, he he ends up being romantically involved with Rosie and, you know, like he just kind of gets it, you know, he gets it bad for her, you know, right away. And there's there's a, a, a large amount of the book that is Rosie keeping him almost at arm's length because she's not ready, you know. To, 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 to be in an, another relationship, which is kind of understandable. But throughout the entire book, Bill kind of ends up being a real stand-up guy. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, it, definitely the, the opposite. Like, the, he's diametrically opposed to um, <laughs> Normie. Yeah. Uh, which, which makes him useless against him, actually. <laughs> yeah, which... <laughs> Very true. Which is... Really interesting. I can, I've got some thoughts about that, but I can save it for the relevant part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, put, put 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 a pin in that because I want to I, I want to hear it. Um, yeah, yeah. So she takes this painting, um, and on her way out, like there was this uh, like another another patron um, in there whose name I should have written down but didn't. Um, who Ronnie Ronnie Lefferts? Yes, Ronnie Lefferts. An older older gentleman who asked Rose to read some passages out of a book because she noticed uh, or he, he noticed her voice. Um, and because this is a Stephen King book, uh, if your character is not going to be a writer, they should be involved in literature in some way. So Rose's job, you know, she gets a street side audition uh, to become an audiobook narrator. <laughs> Which that. It feels a little on the nose. <laughs> it's, it's Providence with a capital P. It's Ka with a capital K. <laughs> yep. Ka Ka. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it doesn't seem to serve an awful lot of a purpose for the for, for the book itself. It feels like to me, like no, and, not, not not at all. And it could have. It, it it feels like the kind of thing where it could have, but yeah. so, it's just there. 
ext- extending probably a lot of uh, kind of wiggle room to this, something that is true about Rosie and is true through the entire book uh, is she has a tremendously powerful imagination, right? Whether that yeah. is from, you know, years of having to live such an internal life or, you know, something special about her again because of this gift, because of the touch or the shining or what have you, you know, she sees and feels things and, you know, has these dreams and disappears to places and you could probably look at that to, you know, feeling, you know, feel, feeling the text of the book and being able to convey it, right? Like, it is a moment of characterization. Um, and also, you know, somebody, you know, who is really repressed and inward turning, you know, having a natural talent for performance like she ends up having um, is, you know, somewhat narratively satisfying right yeah and and also just the idea that she has uh something about her that is innately valuable and innately desirable yes um is like that does serve a narrative purpose uh i i feel like just the the significance they put on the fact that she has a strong voice later in the book Mm -hmm. could have tied in with becoming an audiobook narrator but it it just (laughs) didn't yeah like the I don't I, I feel like there's a lot of significance that you can draw from that, but King didn't really do it. And I was kind of just left with the feeling that maybe he doesn't know what real jobs are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we found it. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but yeah. I mean, uh, uh. <laughs> so St- Stephen King is out. He has, has kind of uh, he has a little bit of a history of being, you know, on the uh, on the edge of tailoring his works to like new ways of you know conveying stories. Right? He directed movies, and you know he he worked an audiobook narrator into into a book that kind of was released around the time when audiobooks were becoming a real thing. Like, there's even like like industry jargon in this. Like, oh, it's a it's a it's a um nascent art form you know or who knows if these things are going to take off you know this is the silent film era of this and then later on he wrote that book er which uh is about a a haunted kindle (laughs) i am not familiar with that one (laughs) it was it's okay (laughs) i yeah oh steve (laughs) stevie the one thing that I think works about this is it really contrasts that she has this that anybody on the street can recognize mm-hmm. that the people in the studio are so impressed with. And um, I don't know, like, because I, I, I think you've read Akewood. Like, do you know when Nice Pete is saying to Lyle that um, when women talk, it's the sound of glass breaking and <laughs> birds are burning in a shoebox? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that, that's, w- what, that's what women's voices sound like to him. I have to imagine for Norman, who does complain about women's talk and oh, women's yeah. this and women's that, I have to imagine that to, to Norman, women are like a horrible toy with no color in the plastic. <laughs> yeah, and an area in the middle where the smells come out, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, that's largely how he views women. Yeah. Um, and so it's just something that was in her that he couldn't recognize. Like, when he talks about Rose, all he talks about is her can and how mm-hmm. she used to have a nice can, but she really let that can go. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't appreciate this Elizabeth Taylor Butterfield 8 speaking voice that yeah. any geek off the street can recognize. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I would not have drawn the connection to Nice Pete, but I'm very happy that you did. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and like, like he does that too. Like, like he he almost has like a like a hypersensitivity to women's voices. You know, when he does encounter people from the, uh, you know, from, from daughters and sisters, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the, yeah. The, 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 there are some connections here and like the, again, it gets into real industry stuff. Like as somebody who edits audio, the fact that she can do things in one quarter, as many takes is pretty important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's, no, it, 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 it's, she has a natural talent for this that has just been dormant and untapped and unrecognized her whole life. And that's, I feel like that's, that is a significant part of the character. The fact that it's audiobook narration feels a little <laughs> self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah. 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 Somebody could have heard her like, you know, singing to herself and uh, you're a star baby. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or <laughs> any, literally anything. It, it could have been literally any kind of creative endeavor yeah. at all. Yep. <laughs> there, are, there are lots of ways that a person can be, you know, can, can have inherent worth and talent. <sighs> uh, yeah but yeah but it, it's you know like that's a huge boost to her confidence yeah. finding out that she's desirable and then that kind of i felt like led into when bill steiner from the pawn shop approached her like her newfound confidence uh between both the job and uh the woman in the painting mm -hmm. which has been has become kind of like a like a focal point for her that has kind of like like thinking of her has gotten her through some some things where she might have backed out otherwise like the the first day in the studio and a couple of other things yeah uh, she, that confidence leads her to accept bill's invitation to dinner which leads to them kind of starting a, a whole thing yeah um, and we should talk about that relationship with the woman in the uh, in, in the painting because she identifies with her so much you know she sees you know this the the, the subject of this painting even without you know seeing the seeing her face can kind of project all of the positive aspects that she wants to have onto her right so like eventually she dyes her hair and starts styling it like the woman in the painting because it helps her you know like she has found an identity uh we're gonna see how that trips up in a big bad way later on but there's one point like where it saves her life like because she had dyed her hair norman who has made his way to chicago uh doesn't recognize her and you know just passes her by well, he he's close. He did recognize that can yep. and how it used to look about ten years ago before she let it go. Yeah, ah, what a dick. Um, <laughs> and like I, I know he's specifically a dick because Stephen King wrote him to be a dick, but he's a he's a dick. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's put a pin in Rosie for a while and head back over to Norman, who has kind of stalled out on the investigation because he didn't trust his instincts enough, right? However, you know, there's uh, he, he gets a lead because somebody tries to use his bank card like Rose. Rose didn't even have the uh, you know, she, she was so afraid of him that she didn't even take the card with her, which was smart. Right. Because if, if she used it in a new city, it could have been tracked down. And we get another one of these establishing moments for Norman where he finds the person who found the card um, and like initially to get him to talk starts giving him a, a, a hand job. And this turns into a death grip on his balls, threatening to pop them like grapes. Yeah, which that's that's kind of the first that scene is the first window into Norman's um, really fucked up, doesn't totally convey it, mm -hmm. uh, but really fucked up relationship with sexuality and homosexuality specifically. Yes, uh, because it's 
really fucked up. Yeah. And his oh utter, utter disdain God. for this person is he uses every single slur under the sun to, um, you know, to, to, to diminish him. Go, go ahead, Autumn. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that we do see this a lot in Stephen King books where it's molestation true. makes monsters. I mean, there there's some remembrances that Norman has of when he was younger with his father molesting him. Um, th- th- there's some things like that. I-, I-, I like the way that Stephen King is able to make you empathize with even these monsters. But I mean, at the same time, you know, when they rescued Michael Vick's dogs, they didn't adopt all of them out right. because some of them are not appropriate and they're not, they're not going to be able to be out in regular society because even though they've had these experiences that aren't their fault that have damaged them, mm-hmm. they have become, uh, they're not, they're not dogs or humans that can be around other people. Right. In some yeah. cases. Yeah. And, and yeah, you, you definitely feel like there, there's a sense of doubt as to how much of Norman's awfulness is actually him. Right. You know, like it, it's, Established that he is part of a cycle of abuse. He is oh, yeah. Mo- yeah, and that's, modeling and the that's behavior a, of his father. Yeah, and that's that's a very a very real thing. Um, but at the same time, there's doubt as to how much of him is a result of that cycle, also, yeah. and how much of it is just him and yeah. and something endemic to him specifically. So, and it's it's very interesting um, how King kind of like gives you both of those options and then makes sure that you're not sure which one's right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like he, he gives you those options and then he heaps a whole helping of his actions and places where he probably could have stopped on, on, yeah. on, on, on top of it. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have an expert understanding of the, of the, of the way this works. All, all, all of this sounds, sounds correct to me and it resonates at least with it within the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just just want to make, I want want to make sure I have have no, no professional. Yeah. There's there's no professional level input into this at all, but just, you know, I've, but talking about it as we do see it with recurrent, characters um and i don't believe that this is a spoiler but we see it with the kid in um the stand yes you do see this um sexual violence with these characters that stephen king turns into to monsters that that sexual component of the violence i think there's a scene um earlier in it as well with patrick Uh, there's always a there's sometimes some of these uncomfortable situations that uses to characterize people uh, it, it's nice again. Like there's even the most problematic scene. I'm never less empathetic after reading it, mm-hmm. but I don't know how sometimes necessary it is, and I certainly don't tend to enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's definitely unpleasant, and I think that if I was trying to describe it without without laying out uh, like a like a value judgment about a lot of it, it would be like he is raising the stakes in a lot of ways maybe prematurely or unnecessarily high uh, probably and maybe it tracks into what i was saying earlier about you think this dude is just a wife beating asshole but this Mm -hmm. dude is crazy yes yeah like as he is threatening to pop this guy's balls like grapes you know he's also expressing and talking about this kind of uncontrollable urge to bite people right like he just wants to take a chunk out of them yeah 
But like he you know, eventually figures it out. Like he has, you know, through some phone calls, this epiphany moment and starts basically walking in Rosie's footsteps, like, and mirroring it with this eerie accuracy. Like as Rosie is trying to do something as simple as pick a seat on the bus, she, you know, she looks and realize and says like, oh, what people think is random um, you know, like picking right or left, oftentimes they're just picking whatever their dominant hand is. And she knows that Norma will think that, so she goes right instead of going left. And when Norman goes and does the same thing, he, he walks down the whole the, the, the whole kind of aspect. Like she won't sit near the front because she doesn't want to be noticed. She won't sit near the back because she's incredibly, you know, particular and clean. And she doesn't want to be near the toilet, so she'll sit in the center. Good old center of the road, Rosie. And, you know, sits left because he underestimates her in that one sense. So, like, he's got two out of three correct, right? But that, you know, ends up, you know, kind of in some ways being enough, but also not enough. Like, that was a that, that was a great way if you remembered those details, um, you know, to see, like, exactly where his score, where his instinct lands him. And I, I know this isn't his favorite plotted book, and this is a bit of a 101 observation, but right from the beginning, we're seeing a labyrinth with a bull. The labyrinth is the United States, and the bull's <laughs> trying to track her, and the bull's taking a couple wrong turns. Like, she, yeah. she is outrunning the bull, but the bull is right on her heels. Yeah. And let's let, let's talk about that bull, because there is a very real bull, bef- you know, before Norman turns into one, um, inside the painting, because Rosie uh, starts noticing that something is weird about this and like not knowing when the supernatural stuff was going to come in. Okay. The painting is probably going to be weird and haunted. Um, boy, I love myself a painting that, that changes subtly and also bonus points. If it ends up being a portal into an impossible space, <laughs> you know, you know, I have to say, um, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't be, but I was very creeped out by the painting when the cricket started coming out. Yeah. Because yeah. there's something about jumping insects and me. Um, gra- if there's a grasshopper within like a hundred yards, it's going to jump in my face. I, I don't know what it is, but my face is a magnet for oh, jumping insects. And I-, I don't know why it happens to me, but I, I mean, I probably get hit in the face by a grasshopper like once a year, which doesn't oh, sound geez. like a lot, but think about how often you get hit by a grasshopper. Uh, not, not, not very, uh, when I was, yeah. when I was 12, there was a brood of locusts that came out during the summer when I was working at a golf course, like doing under the table, uh, uh, kind of gopher work. And, uh, yeah. So imagine, uh, these locusts, uh, just hopping around and coming, oh, coming, coming back from the, you know, like the back nine. Uh, and having somebody say like, yeah, you have 17 locusts sticking on the back of your shirt and also there's one in your hair uh, and there's a little bit of goo from slapping the other one out of your face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my hands are sweating. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just saying I feel your pain. That is a traumatic thing for me. <laughs> but if, uh, it's like the um, why did it have to be snakes? Why did it have to be crickets? <laughs> what it, yeah. Well, the, me at least. Uh, the, I mean, the painting was sealed up like you, there's a uh, glass over the front of it uh, when she finds it in the in the in the store and like and when paper over the back. Yeah. Paper over the back. And when she pulls the paper off the back, like there are dead leaves in it. I dead was, leaves I, and, and dead crickets, mm-hmm. too, which for some reason, like I I don't particularly have any uh, upsetting experiences with jumping insects, but the idea of there being dead crickets that fall out of the back was super creepy and atmospheric to me because it's like they've been there for at least a little while yeah 
I mean, and this is also kind of presaged because she starts hearing crickets somewhere in her house. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, like trying to find a noisy bug in your house. Uh, You can't actually locate those by sound. Nope. Yeah. You cannot. (laughs) I I find that I just pull my hair back from my face and just wait for it to land on it. Uh, Yep. That's that's it. You you could sell that. Just, uh, yeah, got, got crickets. Can't find them. Here's Autumn. It's uh, um, I did I did pick up on a little and it, it made me want to um, I might be way out on a limb here. I have not reread Duma Key in a long time, but I seem to remember there being something about paintings and things changing in there. But it did remind me a little bit of 1408 with some of the stuff with the size, with subtle things in the painting changing when you look back at them. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a little bit of a tie in as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it definitely reminded me of 1408. Yeah. It's a it's 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 a really effective uh, horror device. Um, it uh, works really well. There's a recent uh, indie game called uh, Layers of Fear uh, that is about uh, an artist who paints these kind of horrible scenes um, that kind of works entirely based on uh, based on that principle that changing paintings is scary. Yeah. But yeah, like like one night Rosie wakes up to hear that it's raining and it's raining in the apartment. Um, and the picture has grown and kind of becomes this portal into a large scene. Like she has hung it next to the window and it has kind of consumed the window and it is no longer, um, a portal to outside of her apartment. It is a portal into this other world where it is raining and there is not one woman, uh, but two. So yeah, we, we, we get introduced to, um, (laughs) Well, only one of them really speaks right now, um, and that is uh, a, a woman uh, named Dorcas, uh, who looks exactly like uh, Wendy Yarrow, again, the, the the woman that Norman killed, um, you know, well before the events of the book that we, you know, learned about at the start. Um, and the uh, the woman in the painting, the, uh, the blonde-haired woman who looks like Rose, um, or Rose presumes it, uh, she never learns her real name, and she also never gets a good look at her face. Um, and for all purposes, uh, she is Rose Matter, is is what she is is referred to as. Uh, and she is crazy as a loon, and both of them have some kind of horrible disease that affects their skin. It's like a like a crawling mottled cloud. Uh, that, I was uh, trying to think if that's a like like a disease from any other Stephen King book, but like it, I, I I was trying to like remember if there's like a, a symptom of captain trips that mm-hmm. would manifest itself that way i yeah. i wasn't coming up with anything did either of you find did, a parallel for that no. did it remind anyone else of um the the mutants that were in the swamp and went in the keyhole um that had that slow lichen moss growing thing on them or the maybe the slow mutants from the way station um, yeah, it, it's it also reminds me a little bit of like the the, the people of Lud and the city around it who have like the the sickness from around the wasteland. Yeah, Lud was the closest I could come up with, and I guess that makes sense because uh, as we find out, that's where they met. Yeah, uh, Rose Matter and Dorcas. Yes, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Captain Trips. The most visible thing of that was a swelling of the of the yeah. glands around the neck. The and tube like, yeah, yeah. The tube, the, the the tube neck, and then just the uh, you know people's faces turning blue and all the blood Ugh, man that is yeah that is a very scary book um, yeah <laughs> but yeah like so both of them have this and because they have it it, it it does not actually let them do what they're here to do which is rescue a child from this out of perspective temple at the bottom of the hill 
which interestingly is out of perspective inside the painting also like the the dimensions seem all wrong the angles are impossible yeah like it is which, it, uh, it is difficult to look at yeah which is uh you know super creepy in a house of leaves sort of way that i really like yeah and, and like they, they specifically i was i was just waiting for them to say non non-euclidean to get a little bit of that lovecraft lovecraft heat up there and it delivers yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of talk here. You know, uh, Dorcas is very evasive and everything is very kind of portentous. Right. You know, like Ro- Rose asks the uh, the, you know, the the woman in red's name and she's like, oh, no, that, you know, that's the that, that's a man's question. You know, like that, like that's not going to that's not going to work here. But yeah, like she did you have any kind of thoughts on this and the setup and the world or these characters before we get into like the like the quest that she fulfills here? The one thing that I did take away from it is the theme of this book is blood, 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 blood. I mean, AIDS is in the blood. Rabies later in the book is carried in the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment where Dorcas says. Well, you know, when she's opening up her arm to wrap it around a stone, which I assume they were, I mean, obviously they were doing some sort of cool Indiana Jones swap out um, <laughs> for for a baby. And um, it, was a, it was a lure. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think she even mentions that it would have been better if it was menstrual blood, which ties into that whole woman menstrual blood witchcraft type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, so, something that doesn't really affect me in my everyday life because I'm married to a modern progressive man who... Um, <laughs> Built me a very nice moon hut, hut to go to. <laughs> it's got Wi-Fi. It's got a mini fridge. It's, I mean, it's, like, it's like an Airstream. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. When I'm spending one week a month there, it's like a vacation. <laughs> Again, Jeremy's very progressive. Yeah. Almost like I'm in the main house. <laughs> but it, it just does tie into the women's magic type of thing like um a a women's empowerment type of i mean because menstrual blood i believe is used in a lot of witchcraft yeah i don't know i majored in milking cows i'm not positive (laughs) Um, it it even it even kind of reminded me of uh when in in uh the i forget which dark tower book but when uh roland has susanna channel data to deal with the speaking demon yeah, that's a three or the speaking demon or succubus. I forget which. Uh, are, are you thinking of when they when they draw Jake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the wastelands. But, yeah, but I, think, I think she even mentions that she smells a smell and she can't tell if it's blood or semen. Like the, there is that I, I guess magic in any generative fluid type of thing, mm. and it, it, it's it's just interesting all the different areas. I can't tell if it's a muddy mess of mm-hmm. fairy tales. Greek and Roman mythology. I, I can't quite tell what it is yeah. that he's put together. If it's a mess or if it's very delicately designed. Yeah. Well, and, and he even kind of gets at that a little bit at the end when, when Dorcas says something along the lines of like, you know, there, there are truth to these myths. That's why they're powerful. Yeah. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, it is, it is kind of a mess, but it is also kind of meticulously designed and maybe implying that all mythology is kind of messy inherently, yeah. which is the kind of, uh, you know, overblown Stephen King <laughs> statement that 
we've all come to know and love at this point. Well, of course. Yeah. Um, and Stephen King has a history with this, too. Like, his first book, Carrie, you know, like, she starts develop- developing her powers when she gets her period in the shower uh, after gym class. Oh, you good know? point. Like, yeah, that's yeah. a, you know, like, the, that. that is a very powerful scene there. Um, and some of it made me roll my eyes a little bit. Like these women talk about their periods with each other a lot, like in a way that almost sounds like a, like a, like a nineties standup routine. Um, (laughs) so it's, it's hard for me not to, not to see that like loaded, loaded with a little bit of like, Oh, horror author thinks, thinks periods are icky. Um, Yeah. As, as much as I like Stephen King's female characters for the most part, they are always kind of read like a man writing female characters yeah and that's i i uh, i I try so hard not to see that and i always see that i I just had to start looking past it autumn what were you gonna say yeah i I was just gonna say when we were talking about the mythology and i think i might be about to reference what you talked about earlier he took such care in naming that little pony that was cropping grass right (laughs) Because Radamanthus, what the, the the pony was named, was mm-hmm. actually the brother of Minos, who designed the maze that the Minotaur lived in, yeah. and then was also, I, I believe, I probably should have looked this up before the the podcast, but um, but Ariadne, who was a kind of weaving spider goddess, was also, I think, the daughter of his brother uh, okay. Minos. So I mean, he picked that name with such care. And then to name the bull Arrhenes? <laughs> you fucked up, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is not correct. Yeah. So, so, so is the it's another name for the Fates or the Furies, right? It's yeah, it's the plural, like the the collective name for the Furies. Okay, yeah. So it's not even a name. It, yeah, it, <laughs> it just it annoyed me. Yeah. And, incessantly. Yeah, and and also you know the 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 the, the Furies um, or the Fates. Uh, depicted as women. In fact, also like, aren't they depicted as like the like the three kind of like literary archetypes? The uh, the maiden, the, uh, the 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 something, and the crone. Like the maiden, the matron, and the crone as well. Like to 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 name this this force that is supremely male uh, after a no, you know a notable female figure in mythology seems. I may like maybe I'm you know. Maybe he's trying to say something like, oh, he is fate. You know, he charges forward and there's no control over it and he's blind and like there's probably a little bit there. But, yeah, it's a little distracting, isn't it? The the yeah. only the only thing that I could think of, because, I mean, the big thing about the Furies was the the blood for blood, blood vengeance stuff is, uh, I, I mean, it just seemed like it'd be more, uh, it would apply to the women that she was encountering more. I mean, because yeah. I, I guess the Furies were created when Kronos was crest excuse me, castrated and his blood fell on the ground. Hmm. So, I mean, it does tie into blood, but you, you guys are totally right. I, I don't understand it with, especially with the care that he took with tying Radamanthus, the little pony into both <laughs> spiders and bulls and mazes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I don't get it. Yeah. It's uh... yeah, the, 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 the best I can come up with is, uh, I, cause I was looking, I was trying to figure out why he would have landed on this name for the bull. And in, um, in the first edition monster manual from 1977, the <laughs> Arrhenius was a lesser devil. Okay. Nailed it. That's it. Oh, the, That's uh, it. there we go. Yeah. I could, I could, I could also see that. Huh. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and, and that, that is, um, that like the, the Arrhenius from the monster manual was taken. And that is a, uh, that, that, that is a name for final fantasy monsters as well. 
again i know this i know this stuff from pop culture like (laughs) no like and and like that's that's fine but it it just seems really sloppy yeah agree yeah, I know. I also just made it sound like, oh, Stephen King definitely plays Final Fantasy. Uh, not <laughs> not what I was trying to say at all. <laughs> um, it wouldn't you know, entirely you, surprise me. Yeah, you you got to write two thousand words a day, and you got to put in a solid four hours with Final Fantasy. Yep, got to save Corneria. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's, yeah. The, the, the name of the bull is wrong and bad and dumb, and we all are bothered by it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so 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 Arrhenius is this uh, blind, one-eyed bull. Um, I forget if he's depicted as missing one eye or if he's like cyclopean. It's 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 a cyclopean thing. Okay, cool. Which which kind of comes up later with uh, with the Ferdinand mask. Yes, I love that mask. Um, <laughs> I, I I did like how it kind of foreshadowed how uh, obsessed Norman gets later with smell. Like, mm-hmm. um, as we'll talk about in a minute, like with the urine and everything, the fact that it was woman's urine, the stench mm-hmm. of it, that, that he's trying to find her by smell mm-hmm. uh, and that he is blind. I mean, he's obviously imperfect because, uh, again, Norman doesn't see Rose. He just seen, sees a beige area that makes his dinners and yeah. cleans the house. So he, he really can't see her. Um, but who does he hate the smell of women? Yeah. So, yep, this is a this is a blind bull who lives in this temple, which is a maze, which is a labyrinth, right? At the center of it is is a baby that uh, Dorcas and Rose are here to get, but they cannot because of their condition, you know, because of their affliction, which makes them basically like, um, you know, paint, paints them with a marker that says, yeah, uh, come, come kill these. And so Rosie is useful and the kind of they give her this quest like, hey, you need to make your way over this river that causes forgetfulness and you have to use these seeds from a fallen tree of death, um, uh, which is, oh, gosh, it's a pomegranate tree or it looks like a pomegranate tree that plays into what's her name? Persephone, who went to the uh, underworld, right? Yeah. And and they they even say, like, you know, doesn't look like any pomegranate tree she's ever seen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, this is another example of Stephen King, uh, <laughs> knowing Greek mythology and still not yeah. naming the bull, the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'll try not to keep bringing that up, but of, God, it bugged me so much of him, of him Same. knowing better. <laughs> but, um, but like, so the way that, uh, Rose does, like solves this puzzle is really clever. Right. Like she uses these oblong seeds to mark her path. Um, you know, she uses the lure that uh, that Dorcas uh, gives her. Um, and when the baby stops crying, you know, she's trying to locate this this baby by by sound. She uses her powerful voice to, like, give this, like, loud country holler that wakes the baby back up. <laughs> This is even mentioned later, and I, I can't quite remember where it is, but there was a moment where Rose screams like she used to when she was in elementary school, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a stunner of a scream. It's really interesting that in the beginning of the book, all that you hear is her breath control, her trying not to make a single noise, her laying there with her apron over her face, mm-hmm. and the the more vocal she gets, the louder she gets, the more she's screaming the more empowered she is, 
the more aggressive she is. It, it's just you would expect someone who's having violence enacted against them to be screaming to make it stop. But mm-hmm. her silence is what has kind of trapped her. Yeah. And the more she screams, the more free she is. Yeah. The more uh, the more she can affect things around her. Yeah. Right. But she grabs the baby and then there's this harrowing chase scene as, you know, she's trying to avoid this, you know, blind bull that is charging after her um, as they as, as as they get out. Um, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of action here. Um, I want to are, are there any details that are that are kind of pertinent um, that I that, that I kind of missed? Now, this this was a, a really fun, interesting part of the book to read. But in terms of the story, I feel like. It's better to just read it. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, like it's full of a lot of like really surreal dream imagery kind of stuff, which I'm really down for in a lot of ways. Um, Autumn. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, it is metaphor city for Rose's <laughs> life and everything. But again, not to get too English 101, but you should probably experience those metaphors for yourself. Yeah. And also, like, none of it's explained, and it just carries symbolic weight as opposed to, like, <laughs> um, and, I, and I like that because it leads a lot of ambiguity. Like, there is something terrible in our world at the end of this book um, that, uh, you know, is never really explained, like, what the purpose is. Um, but, yeah, she gets out, and this is where we get a little bit of the story. So, you know, Dorcas, uh, in the notes here, I have her as Wendy, uh, which is strange. Uh, Dorcas starts explaining like, hey, you know, we've been traveling for a long time. You get the sense that this is, you know, they're looking for their own tower almost. And this baby is, you know, something that, you know, will help them get on that way. You know, and they talk about, you know, passing, you know, seeing so much suffering, passing the burning bodies and the heads on stakes outside the city of Lud. Um, And they're making frequent mention of um, Ka as well. Like that is just kind of thrown around with no explanation um yeah you know, that it means you know a combination of like destiny and duty yeah i i i have a couple of theories about the baby that we can talk about now or later but um i, I think that the tree um the the tree that she gets the seeds from that she uses to mark her path in the labyrinth which has significance later in the book mm-hmm. i feel like that might be their um their version of the tower or their um their it i feel like that somehow ties into both their destination and the tower mm. in that it is an object that goes across worlds yeah. and um and needs to be treated with the proper care and respect yes i did have one quick Uh, I suppose Dark Tower tie-in before we leave this section. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a moment where Dorcas says to her, for the sake of every god that ever was, stop your stupid sheep's whining. (laughs) Uh, Oh, yeah. And Court did often say, stop your whining, maggot, to the boys. (laughs) Um, And there's a moment at the beginning of Wizard and Glass where Eddie says to a character named Blaine, quit your whining, pal. (laughs) Which... Again, if these goddesses are associated with Gilead, Gilead does not like whining. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so, um, I, I thought that that just had a little bit when someone's telling someone else to stop their whining. We, we definitely <laughs> see that twice in the Dark yeah. Tower series. Like, 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 so so Rose Matter and Dorcas are definitely aligned with order. You know, as as the series goes on, you know, we get this kind of conflict between the red and the white, right? One generally representing gone and order whereas one is 
you know, an agent of, you know, the Crimson King and chaos and, you know, fight, fighting for Discordia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're very much on the side of order. Um, and it's a little, I think that it's like a, like a, like a growing pain kind of thing, um, where he didn't quite consider what it would mean that Rose also has a black pendant with a single red flaw in it that looks like an eye, um, something that Randall Flagg gives out to people that he favors in the stand um, that also represents the Eye of the Crimson King. It reminded me a little bit of that single spot of blood, too. It was one flaw on a white background instead of a black. Yeah. Also good. Yeah. But as Ro- Rosie goes to leave and return to her world, um, Rose Matter kind of gives her mantra. Again, this is a book of mantra. Um, like, hey, you know, Rosie has done this favor and all that Rose Matter has to say about it is I repay. I um, mean, in the audiobook that is delivered chillingly. <laughs> it, it reminds you of the Lannisters, right? Like a goddess always pays their debts <laughs> yep. or her debts. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's I was trying to remember it, it. That feels so familiar to read. I repay like it does mm-hmm. seem like something. And the, the closest I got was the Lannister family motto. Yeah. That's so for it's so for foreboding because I repay either means like oh I'll give you five bucks for gas or you know you fucked yeah. me over and it gets into like a Corleone kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about the climax of this because there's a little bit of a creamy middle to it as Rose gets her feet under her professionally and you know things develop with Bill um, you know as she establishes her own life and that stuff. That stuff is important because, like, this is a book about her getting control over her own life back. But, like, everything is leading up to Norman having tracked her down um, here. And everything gets to a head in the uh, uh, the daughters and sisters fundraiser picnic. Right. And so in the lead up to this, Norman is here and he is completely out of his fucking mind at this point. He's tracing Rosie's steps. He's completely delusional. And even worse than that, he realizes it. Like he says, like, yep, I am, I'm off the deep end and it doesn't matter. He stops thinking about, he very pointedly stops thinking about what happens after this. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. He, he can't see beyond killing Rose and it, that's fine with him. Yeah. When he keeps talking about that bank card, all I can think of is the the end of um, that film, like you're William Randolph Hearst and like your <laughs> rosebud is the bank card, you know, like there's a snow globe and a bank card in it. I, re- I remembered what the bank card reminded me of. Uh, <laughs> hey, Trashy, what did Mrs. So-and-so say when you burned her pension check? Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's the, the, the they feel a little bit on the same order of magnitude. Like, maybe like that 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 thing. You know, like th- that act defines the trash can man in a way that you know this does for Norman as well. And and this yeah. is as he slides off the deep end. Um, this is where we start to get into that language. Like here a whore, there a whore, everywhere a whore, whore. And yeah. um, I mean, I mean, it just Castle Lesbo, Little Miss Hot Snatch. I yeah. mean, it is. Castle Lesbo seems like a cool place to hang out, like very He-Man, you know, like <laughs> yeah. by yeah, the power I, of Castle Lesbo, like yeah. I want to go to there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think I went to some pretty good parties there in college. <laughs> yeah, they had to recall. They, I mean, they didn't have to, but after a lot of religious outcry, they recalled that. Uh, they recalled that playset. And I, I have to imagine that, that Little Miss Hot Snatch was that award-winning indie film, you know. <laughs> That would also be a pretty good title, like a subversive yeah. title. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I feel like uh, 
That, that was Diablo Cody, right? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's like he he's he's totally in this, and you know, there's uh, uh yeah, he he doesn't hold uh, the women's shelter in high regard, uh, or yeah. just like any notion of you know protecting women or valuing women or yeah, well, that. He, he um in order to infiltrate the picnic, he he gets his head shaved and pretends to be a paraplegic and, and gets a wheelchair and he, he goes to like the um the women's museum and buys bumper stickers to put on the back of the wheelchair and the mm-hmm. one that is his favorite that he thinks is the funniest is one that says I am a man who respects women. Jeez. It's like yeah that yeah. Mm, okay yeah that's uh that's that's who this guy is. I, I realize I'm getting angry at a I'm I'm getting angry at a at a fictional character, but it's a fictional character that represents views that I think are repugnant. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it feels obvious to say that, but but, uh, um, in the course of tracking her down, you know, he finds Peter Slowick, the person who directed Ro- Rosie to the uh, to, to 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 the women's shelter, um, tracks him down at his own house and bites him to death, and you know he bites off and consumes his penis too. Uh, yeah, so, so, so straight up chomps that ding dong, um, <laughs> you know, and he, and he, and he goes, he, he goes into like these fugue states, right? Like, no, you can't, you can't just say that and then continue on. Like you didn't say that. The straight delivery is what sells it. <laughs> I, I wish that we, that you actually did episode titles besides, you know, the name of the book because straight up chomps that ding dong. Chopping on that ding dong is 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 really solid. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> he he goes for it. he goes whole hog, uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, but, but um, yeah. So it's 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 pretty pretty gross. Fortunately, we are spared a lot of a lot of the actual details of it. We just yeah, we get the flashes retroactively. Yeah, like the by, yeah. by the cops talking about it. Yeah, yeah, and the the thing the thing that's maybe the most unsettling about uh that whole sequence is that afterwards the thing that bothers norman the most is that his jaw hurts yep <laughs> the fact that he doesn't really remember it either and he's like i'm just gonna take a couple percocet i must have who knows what i did but yep. my jaw feels bad yep. the, boy these the, these dogs are tired by which i mean my jaw my jaw my, my, my jaw dogs um <laughs> yeah. Dogs. Oh yeah. My God. No, he's Jaw he, Dogs is the alternate title for this episode. Jaw Dogs. Yeah. My Jaw Dogs are barking. <laughs> but uh but yeah, like his 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 uh his his, his chompers are going overtime like and that just man that that also works out in a really upsetting way later on. Again, just uh, his jaw. Um he uh also kills um Ann Stevenson as well. You know, he tracks her down at the uh, at the at the place. Um, right before at the place at daughters and sisters, um, before, yeah. uh, before the picnic. And, that, and he, that, that's what we were he, talking about. He, he tracks her down at daughters and sisters by attacking and killing Pam, who is at work in the hotel where he's staying. Yes. There's some so. moment where they, they both smell his cologne, which in the book is English leather. And <laughs> I don't understand why they missed an opportunity to have it be brute. Like, <laughs> Why would Norman not be wearing brute cologne? Because yeah. he's a brute. Yeah. Like <laughs> he wears English leather. He wears nothing at all. Yeah. I'm sorry. Nothing at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. Stupid, sexy Norman. <laughs> anything but. Anything but. 
but yeah, the, like the, this is the like the 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 end killing is the one that I, I feel that doesn't serve a purpose. No, it, I think. especially because like Anne's death isn't discovered until like days after the events of the climax. Right. Like, the, there's no narrative significance. There's nothing. The the fact too that they took an opportunity or that he took an opportunity in a book that really is empowering for women to say that, oh, a woman was proud of what she did for other women, Mm -hmm. and so she deserved to die. I think it touches on this at the beginning. Like, her, he implied almost that her pride is what got her killed, but it's a wonderful thing that she's doing. Yeah, she's serving the community in a very real way. Uh, Yeah, I I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it. Um, I'm not ambivalent about it. That implies I feel both ways. I just don't think it's a good. I, I yeah. think it's. I think it's a waste. Yeah. yeah, I I I did not care for for that choice. Yeah, but yeah. Um. So as the picnic begins, Rosie and Bill are on this kind of motorcycle date out to a secluded spot. Uh, like you said, is is Navy Pier secluded like that? Oh no, their their date is very much not at Navy oh, Pier. Okay. The picnic, the uh, the, the daughters the, and the, sisters the, picnic ah. with like the. Like equal parts, uh, like carnival rides and yeah. storefronts oh. and stuff. Like if if it is Chicago, that makes a lot more sense about how they got the Indigo Girls because I did not realize that until you guys were talking about it, and I'm mm-hmm. like, so they just sent the Indigo Girls to like <laughs> the middle of nowhere? Like, oh, is she in Kansas? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the Indigo Girls love to play out. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. My 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 assumption uh, was that the story starts and uh and that rose and norman initially live in new york and then rose goes to chicago yeah because new yorkers are some of the only people that i've ever met who speak disdainfully of chicago as being a small city (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're one of only two cities that could possibly yeah um and uh most of the ones i've met are kind of dicks about it (laughs) oh See, that's the thing. You have to like come, it's a you, weird thing. You have to come from a city that they never think about, and then you're just basically Kenneth from uh, from Thirty Rock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you can you can obfuscate. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the, the, they're they're on a date out to this out to this place, and there's again one of these meaningful moments, capital M, capital M, as they you know find this fox den underneath a uh, underneath a tree. And Bill kind of explains, like, yeah, the, the the father of the kits is not around. He 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 passed due to rabies. And kind of what he says that is really foreboding is, you know, the male ones die to it immediately. You know, they go crazy. They get violent. The female ones carry it forever. You know, it takes longer. It's, you know, worse in a lot of ways. Yeah. And they, they just kind of make unwise choices mm-hmm. yeah. is, is kind of what it what it amounts to in his explanation. Yeah. But yeah, again, that that loads it up, and we're going to see the way that is mirrored in 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 other places. But Norman Chekhov's fox, <laughs> Chekhov's fox, yeah, as, especially as you see Rose Matter in some of the later scenes, the the actual goddess being a little bit a little bit off. Oh, I mean, yeah, she she she, she is uh, cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Um, <laughs> there was a there was a moment a, a little bit earlier from where we are where Dorcas was saying. Uh, to rose don't waste time with man's questions what mm-hmm. are you talking about and, and, and then she was like what are man's questions and dorcas <laughs> said ones you already know the answers to is there some <laughs> is there something that's the inverse of mansplaining like is it manterrogation like <laughs> is that like what they do like um 
We know yeah. what happened in the alley. Just tell me you shot that person. Like, is that yeah. man interrogation? <laughs> like, if, if it's not, let's spread that hashtag man interrogation. Yeah, let's make it a thing. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> what are what are man's questions? Once you already know the answers to. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I, f- I forgot about that. Yeah. Man, man interrogation is very clever. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like that a lot. <laughs> so, so while Rosie's out on this motorcycle date. Uh, Norman rolls up quite literally uh, with his head shaven clean like Michael Jordan um, and infiltrates the the picnic pretending to be this paraplegic like we said and frustrated that Rosie isn't there um, he starts turning on her friends and attacks Cynthia who is you know basically doesn't stand a chance against him Um, fortunately uh, Gert shows up (laughs) oh Gert thank you uh, so Gert could make swift work of him even without this, but she decides to tase him, which is which is good. And they have she, she gets he, he has a taser, which is oh in, shit, I initially, forgot. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, sorry, he, I, he brings the taser, which is yeah. very alarming initially. But then yeah, she uh, <laughs> she, she turns it around. She, well, she she, she, she takes the tase. Yeah, yeah, she gets tased in the leg, and then like through that somehow gets it away from him. I don't remember exactly, Mm -hmm. but, uh, and then tases him and pins him on the ground. (laughs) Yep. So Cynthia gets away, you know, she's injured, but, uh, you know, walks, which, you know, she's the, the first person other than Rose so far, who has walked away. Uh, so good, 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 good for her. Um, and the, the, the moment of this, that feels the most poetic, um, and it's, it's hard to say something as overt as, 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 as so overt and crass as this is poetic, but here we go. Um, well, we, we've okay. seen Rose struggling throughout the entire book with her kidneys. Even when she's yes. leaving her husband, she has to go behind a house and urinate because he has hit her so many times in her kidneys that the, they're weak. And I mean, yes. just like what you carry around with abuse, they're getting slowly better. But mm-hmm. I mean, she, she has a lot of problems. She, yeah. she can barely hold her bladder. And ooh, ooh, does Gert say to him, oh, I, I heard you like to hit girls in the kidneys. Well, I've got something real special for you from my kidneys. Yep. Uh, and she decides to piss on Norman's face. And this is fantastic. Oh, uh, so cathartic. Yeah. It's so satisfying. <laughs> and you know, like like this is this is the like the worst violence that could have been done to him in a lot of ways. Like it is the one that I think has the most effect on him, uh I think aside from this the from the the stealing of the bank card. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this the, the, this piss is the death blow. Yeah, th- this is y- you you thought that he had completely lost any shred of sanity before mm-hmm. and oh no <laughs> no it 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 goes way deeper after this happens it it does show how weak he is cuz they talk about how at the very end of their marriage like right before rose leaves that she was losing big blocks of time when she was sitting in a rocking chair and taking multiple showers during the day that she was losing these blocks. And I mean, that took her years and years of abuse. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Norman gets urinated on, he's missing some time. (laughs) Yep. Like right after that, he's like, draw that parallel. Yeah. 
Oh, like that, that oh my God. that's all that it took. Like he's, you know, he's, he's blanked out before this, but like that was after he did violence to other people. Like, you know, there are just flashes of him stealing this bull mask from a little kid, um, in order to escape, you know, flashes of him doing what he can to kind of take care of this. But yeah, like, like this breaks him utterly. That's a really good point yeah. that like, how fragile is this piece of shit? Yeah. When when he starts talking about time being out of joint too, it reminds me of the time getting soft, the world moving on, except it's just straight out of this dude's crazy town map. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um big into it. Also big into the Ferdinand the Bull mask. Like I, I yeah. I I've you know, was tangentially aware of Ferdinand the Bull is like this old timey just kind of cartoon figure. But yeah, like he's he's walking around with just a cartoon bull mask and this becomes like his new face later on um yeah is that a i can't quite remember is that edgar Allan poe or is that a twilight zone episode where they put the masks on and the masks become their faces i don't know i think that's a twilight zone episode where they have to put um a mask on for to get an inheritance and then they're stuck with the masks on their faces Ugh. but uh, but when he can't get that mask off and he becomes the bull mm-hmm Ooh. It's uh, yeah, and like the mask is talking to him even. <laughs> yeah, in in the notes you have uh, Norman is able to escape by stealing a kid's Ferdinand the bull mask, which he puts it on to drive away, figuring that the security will take note of somebody in a Ferdinand the bull mask, but won't necessarily connect it with anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, steals the steals the mask, which promptly starts talking to him, <laughs> which is hilarious because that's exactly what happens, like immediately. Yep. Um, in the in the audio book, I don't know how the text is rendered um but um uh like it uh like when when he when the mask is talking to him uh king or uh or or, or oh gosh who was the person uh blair they um they 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 like muffle the uh their their, their voice <laughs> if the mask is like in his bag or in his pocket or something like that oh that's so good <laughs> <Yeah>. wow <laughs> it's just a just a nice little touch <laughs> but yeah like he is he flees the scene you know in this in this piss reeking bull mask um that is that, that that is promptly talking to him and you know rosie returns you know getting ready to tell to sell t-shirts and kind of surveys the carnage right and eventually decides hey i need to start working with the police even though i don't i i just i i otherwise would not like i am driven to this because you know the police are a family and you know and we're brothers right I yeah. love seeing Rose get mad when she's punching <laughs> that police car and she's like, he sucks. <laughs> he yeah. ruins everything. Like, yeah. she, just, like, she even like calms down and then she punches the police car again. I love it. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He, uh, he, he ruins everything. That is yeah. apt. <laughs> Fucking skunk Norman. Yeah. This, this was <laughs> supposed to be the big day. <sighs> but yeah. So yeah, so she's she's working with the police, and that's where we meet uh, Hale, who is kind of like, you know, a, a real police officer. Yeah, yeah like right. a, a real a uh, real public servant. You know, so yeah. we're we're up to two. We're up to Sheriff Alan Pangborn and <laughs> Officer Hale. We got two good cops. <laughs> We've got two yeah. of them. Yeah. Well, and, and and Hale Hale straight up tells her like, you know, I'm gonna bust this guy, and I'm gonna do it because he's a cop, because he's a goddamn hero cop. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know the, what he's doing isn't right it isn't okay you shouldn't be flinching every time one of us raises our hand right i i did like that they showed that rose was completely right 
because when they were trying to call in and get his fingerprints and his photo, like literally Norman's police team was styming it. They were like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we uh, we probably faxed that, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like she was completely right. They absolutely would not have helped her. No. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they, they were slow walking it. Like she she was acquainted with all of them. She knew all of their crimes and just how dirty they were. So let's get to the final showdown because the pieces are quickly getting in, into place. Norman, um, by going and finding Anne, uh, has also determined where Rosie's apartment is and knows that that is probably where that you know where Rosie is going to flee to. Um, and you know he shows up and kills the cop at a stakeout, and which go- he, he justifies he, he you know he he's. He justifies killing a fellow police officer by saying, oh, it wasn't him. It was the bull. Yep. <laughs> Which, again, all right. Yep. <laughs> it, it just like, again, like it doesn't it doesn't matter what happens after. Yeah. And, yeah. and it does show his madness because at the very beginning you thought, well, he hates literally every minority. He hates women, uh, but he likes his police bros. No, he doesn't even care about that. No, no. <laughs> He's just a monster. Yeah. Like it, he, he kills. He kills to kill. Um. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> he he does this and, and, and Rosie kind of charges in knowing that he even though he's waving this gun around, he's not going to actually use it because he doesn't want this to end quickly. Right. So they're in this darkened apartment that is like its own maze and he is chasing after them and, you know, shooting at the neighbors um, and eventually like gets a hold of Rosie's hand, like bites down onto her fingers. Well, he, he gets a hold of Bill. Oh yes, strangles and him. yeah, and 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 he he gets Rosie's hand because she's trying to get him off of Bill. Yeah. Did did and, anybody else notice that while they were moving up the stairs uh, that because Norman had like shot out or removed the light switch or flipped the breakers or whatever, so they're moving up in the dark. That um, Rose was trying to move up the stairs and that the foot that had been searching for the 19th step found nothing because oh. she had, she had assumed that there were 19 steps, but there were only 18. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. I missed that. <laughs> yeah. And also I, yep. That, that, that is a terrifying thing because I've had that happen before and losing <laughs> count of a step is a scary thing. But th- yeah. This ties into what I was saying at the beginning. Rose takes no shit from this moment onward. No. She kicked, she kicks Norman in his broken nose. Mm-hmm. There's even a moment where he is so excited because he's able to grab her hand and he puts her finger in his mouth and he bites down. She dislocates his jaw. Yeah. Like she, yeah. she, <laughs> you know, instead of just letting him do this, curls her fingers and just kind of, I think yanks, yanks his jaw. Like she's starting a mower. Yeah. She, she, she just gets mad. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I think even more upsettingly, Norman is able to shake this off. He pops his jaw back in at least halfway. And that's kind of what gets him to pull the mask over his face because like it tells him like, oh, you know, all this will go away. If you just pull the mask on, it'll support your jaw. You'll be you'll be fine. And that's what causes the fusion when he finally puts it on entirely. That is something a sane man thinks. Yeah. <laughs> this rubber kit's mask is going to serve as a perfectly fine uh, uh, sling for my broken face. But th- this no, does I... tie back into what I said at the beginning. After page 14 of this book, she takes no shit. No. 
<laughs> she she's yeah. a hero. She is amazing, and I love her. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, for the, there was a good portion where she, where she was on the run and fearful, but like when she found the painting and started borrowing that strength, um, and but borrowing the strength until, until she realized it was her own. Like quite literally, like when she leaves the painting, I forgot to mention she gets this armlet that is like an armlet of power, you know, from from Rose Matter. And, you know, she thinks that she has this on when she's doing all this rad shit to, to, to Norman. And she gets back into the apartment and realizes, oh, I didn't actually have it on. I just thought I did. It's a real, like, Dumbo's feather moment. Oh. Yeah. And when she oh. starts taunting him. I do have a question for, for both of you uh, with regard to when, when Norman pulls the mask down and kind of becomes Arrhenius. Is 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 he being possessed by the spirit of the bull, or is he just kind of giving way to his very basest self, or is he just completely fucking nuts and the mask fuses to his face in the portrait world because he's completely fucking nuts? Like, I couldn't really get a good read on what was happening yeah. there. Uh, go, go, go ahead, Autumn. I, I guess that, that's a very good question. I couldn't quite tell. There's all the moments where they describe him in the beginning. Um, they, they use a lot of language talking about him bellowing like a bull. I mean, there's there's bull language all throughout. I, I, obviously, we talked about him being blind when he's looking for Rose. But it's that, that is a very good question because does he become the monster? I, I mean, he was a monster the whole time. I guess, is that his twin? Yeah, I, I read it as kind of like a twinner's thing. I'm very happy that it's out of focus and not like directly explained. Like, I read it as a possession, but like they were both the same in the first place. And, yeah. you know, like they were both simple enough that, you know, the just, <laughs> just basically the, the, the their shared urges made them one and the same, regardless of kind of the transformation that happens. Like when he goes through the, 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 the portal chasing after her, chasing after Rose and Bill, like the, the, the two eye holes become one and the mass tells him like, yeah, this is the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting um, that he, he kind of starts out as this, like he, he's a monster the whole time, but at, at least at the beginning of the book, he's like kind of a brilliant detective. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the book, he's literally a bull in a metaphorical china shop <laughs> like just charging full speed ahead with no regard for for subtlety or consequence or or anything and that that transformation is kind of the inverse of roses yeah there there was a, a moment um right at the very beginning of the novel where rose talks about her husband's madness being as soft as the rustle of a bat of bat wings in a cave <sighs> That reminded me a little bit, I don't know, maybe because I was on the podcast and we talked about it, but um, of Eyes of the Dragon, where they were talking about the bats that scared Thomas so badly. Mm -hmm. And then when you go through later, he literally gets hit in the face by a bat <laughs> while they're going through all of this. Yeah. Like a brown bat flies into his face. And then especially with Rose Matter turning into a bat-faced slash spider demon at the end. Mm -hmm. I, I, again, when you're on a Dark Power podcast, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, seeing that bat reference to, to Bats in the Belfry, Madness, and then that tiny little tie-in with uh, Eyes of the Dragon, I thought was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, is, it is a functional, uh, a functional device. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the way that Norman meets his end and specifically how Rose Matter repays, right? Because as they are in the world of the painting, um, you know, like the, 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 the plan goes into, pl- into place because Rose herself looks so much like Rose Matter, they effectively switch places. And at, at least from the back. Yes, from the back. Yes. Uh, for, from, from, we never get a good look at her from the front, but that is, that is enough because Norman believes that he has caught his, his prey, you know, on the, on the steps of this, uh, of this temple. And she turns around and it's anything but. And, you know, Rose Matter, who, again, is <laughs> uh, cr- cr- crazy as a, a, a box of a box of ducks, uh, turns or, around uh, cr- yeah. crazy as a rabid fox. Yeah. Uh, yes. There we go. Uh, she, she turns around and decides to talk to him up close, which is what Norma would always say to Rose to, you know, like as the as the preface, like, I'm going to talk to you, talk to you up close. Um, as she transforms into this spider monster with again bat-like features and fox eyes and, and just a, a, a terrifying a, a terrifying amalgamation. There's there, there's a wonderful line uh, where he talks about the features of her face rearranging like lilies on a calm pond. Yeah. Um. Which yeah that. Mm, um. As the as the arms come out. And she starts devouring him for a long, long time until the screaming stops. This this might be a little bit obvious, but I did want to mention it. There's the big thing in Greek and Roman mythology about when there's anything mystical happening or magical that you can't look. And we see so much with Bill having to look down that he can't watch. Initially, Rose isn't allowed to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in like Christian mythology, I mean, Jesus goes in the cave and you don't exactly see what happens. No. Um <laughs> after yeah. except that now we celebrate easter <laughs> when, there's, when there's anything with a i hate to say primitive because we're probably talking about two thousand four thousand six thousand years ago mm-hmm. but when you are talking about that anything that's mystical is always hidden from view and you're not allowed to look yeah uh, just that, just just ask lot's wife Ooh, well played yeah or uh or those uh raiders of the lost ark nazis oh yeah Nailed it. <laughs> they, 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 they had it coming. Or, or since we're doing this, ask a Eurydice. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once we saw Rose Matter's face reveal with uh, all, all the spideriness, uh, I, I kind of had an idea about the baby, which, which is another Dark Tower tie-in that I didn't want to mention earlier because uh, it's kind of getting way ahead of ourselves here. Mm-hmm. But um, those of you who have read the Dark Tower books ahead of where the show is know that there is uh, a child who has some spider shape shifting murdery tendencies, yeah. um, and it's 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 a it's a boy child, so it's clearly not the one that that Rosie rescued right. from the temple. But um, it th- there was some some weird stuff with uh, that that baby's pregnancy where it was not conceived; it was implanted mm-hmm. and uh i i kind of have a feeling that maybe this this caroline might be in some way connected or related to uh the chap yeah um but 
But to be fair, I mean, who wasn't born with eight arms and silk in their mouths? I mean, like yeah. all of my baby pictures, I've got eight arms. No, no shame but, in my game. No, but you you outgrow that is the thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you lose your baby legs. Yeah, exactly. the uh, this you know it, this this character in the Dark Tower books he carries those tendencies on into adulthood where it's just socially unacceptable, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a whole it's a whole thing. Right. I, I can't believe I just outed myself as the roly poly little bat faced girl from the yeah. Paul Simon song. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah. So 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 it either could be something as significant as that, or it could be something having to do again with the demons from the prim, or it could be a similar uh kind of echo of that kind of thing, because like her transforming or R- Rose Matter specifically transforming into this uh uh spider monster, like that that happens in it. You know, like that yeah. is, uh, you know, not that huge of a spoiler. It, you know, Pennywise isn't a clown. Hey, um, also not a spider. Uh, like this notion of these kind of cosmic shapeshifters is is a through line and stuff that is in this mythos, right? Yeah. You know, we always talk about how um, or we have recently about how the people that are currently on the podcast want to move on to the next book. But I just finished Wolves of the Cala, and um, I'm probably, as soon as we finish up recording tonight, going to move to book six and book seven because I only vaguely know what you guys are talking about because I mm-hmm. probably only read those books twice a piece. Yeah. But, ooh, yeah, yeah. I, got, I got an agenda <laughs> for the rest of the evening. Yeah, uh, books, <laughs> book, book six is kind of is kind of butt, but I think book seven gets a bad rap. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, um, the, other, the other theory I had about the baby uh, – is not spoilery at all, but uh, I, I, I kind of had the notion that maybe the baby is both Rosie and Rose matter. And that mm-hmm. like the, the notion of twinning, like, you know, kind of as it, getting ahead to the, toward the end of the book, um, Rosie winds up having these fits of rage and violent fantasies. And, and mm-hmm. she realizes that she has to, learn how to manage those yeah. uh and i, I kind of get the feeling that if she hadn't learned to manage those that she might have somehow wound up infected with whatever rose matter had and might have wound up going in that path yes and that the baby is a blank slate version of both of them yeah. somehow when- when they talk, keep talking about rose and they keep saying remember the tree remember the tree mm-hmm. do it reminded me a little bit of that whole high speech thing with the Charyu tree oh, yeah. that the, the human sacrifice to punish sins and um, bring good yeah. crops, according to the Dark Tower wiki. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it did remind me of that as well. Remember the tree. Remember the tree. You're going to have to make some sort of sacrifice or some sort of um, appeasement to <laughs> repent for your sins and to keep everything on an even keel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, by by the end of this book, both both of the roses have their baby, right? You know, the the, the book began with Rose with Rosie losing hers, um, and you know, the thing that unlocks this is her rescuing the baby for Rose Matter, and the thing that tempers Rosie's own fits is actually having her own baby with with Bell, right? Um, and there, there, there's a little bit more like twinning stuff. Like, you know, Rosie starts calling the uh, the baby in the labyrinth Caroline, I believe, um, because that was the name that she had given to her uh, to her child that she lost. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. We we also see Rose um I, I guess she roofies her own husband with a few drops of the river Lethe, right? Yeah, she does. So like after all this is done, you know, uh nothing is explained. Like Rosie sees uh Rose Matter fill, filling um uh Norman's flesh with seeds again from this tree of death, like and the only explanation she gets is, Oh, uh she's seeding him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sure, of course, yeah. as you do. <laughs> yep. Uh, she she pushes the final one into his eye, just like popping it through it, which is okay. Well, yeah. Um, and she says, like, yeah, you know, Bill, um, he's going to go crazy if he remembers any of this. So she gives him a vial of this water from the stream to kind of give him in small doses whenever he starts to remember. So yes, it is, it is Rufy. Um, you know, but for uh, yeah, it's it it spares him at the at the very it's least. A, yeah. It's 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 a forget me now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there we go. That softens it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, okay. it, it is that narrative where, because we talked about, I guess, earlier when we're talking about archetypes and things, but there's the, the men's fear of the woman's power, mm-hmm. but there is that whole woman thing where men can't know the mysteries. Yeah. It, it it, it, it's 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 interesting it makes bill look like a real soft boy <laughs> hey we, we don't use soft boy as a as an insult around these parts well i'm just saying like throughout the whole thing bill like i, I love seeing that rose has moved from someone dominating her and destroying her to her actually caring for someone and her her being almost in charge i think that that's yeah. an important development for the character yes and i i think she uses that power well yeah, she found a cuck. <laughs> no, no, I'm just... hey, wait, we we only use that word negatively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I you yeah. know we're, we're no, trying I... to rob of rob it of its power. <laughs> yeah. And it, it it kind of like that that ties in. I I forgot to mention earlier at the the conflict between Rose and Norman in the apartment before they go into the painting. Even uh, one of you, I think Cole, you mentioned earlier, like he is the opposite of Norman, which makes him useless against Norman. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I was really, really worried because one of the things that, that Rose matter says after the first meeting with her is that beasts will fight and describes all men are beasts and beasts will fight. And I was so worried that it was going to be this thing where Bill was going to try to fight Norman Mm -hmm. and die yeah, and I was just going to be even more bummed than I already was reading this book. Yeah, um, but I, then at at the end, when uh, Rose Rose Matter refers to Bill as a good beast, and uh, Rosie says like stands up and says, "Don't call him a beast," and get your diseased hand off him, and looks mm-hmm. her in the face. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is an kind of an awesome scene by itself, but like it's it's kind of in defiance of this authority, like this, this powerful authority who has decreed that all men are beasts. And she's, she's saying it's like, no, that's you know, all, all beasts are beasts. Yeah. I, I Be- did like beasts Steve- will fight. Bill is not one of those. Yeah. Stephen King tricked us in the same way that, it, you know, after the concert, after Norman had gone to the women's restroom and torn up some ladies, or tried to and gotten urinated on instead. (laughs) I like that Rose assumed that the whole concert would be shut down and the Indigo girls would just go home. (laughs) 
And it's that it's that same type of thing. I think we all assumed I, I thought Bill was going to die as soon as Norman put his hands on his throat. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was all over. Rose didn't assume that. And she kept fighting. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was an interesting kind of narrative conceit where they tricked me into thinking, well, it's all over her, her, <laughs> her burgeoning romance. It's all done. Yeah. Uh, Norman put his hands on his throat once. It's all over. <laughs> Pack it up. And in, Exactly. And it, it, just like I thought that the Indigo Girls would probably not play anymore. Or Rose thought that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I thought about Bill yeah. and Norman. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Rose walks back into her own world with Bill, um, kind of in this days. And uh, much like the first visit, she gets one single kind of piece of advice, one one phrase from Rose Matter, uh, imploring her to remember the tree, right? Um, and she still has these seeds in her possession, uh, you know, that like they cause death, like they tell her they don't even don't even touch your mouth after you touch one of these seeds. Um, they stay in everything they touch, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and things kind of progress uh, a, a little bit as you would expect it from the from the legal side of things, because there's a dead cop. And also this person who killed the cop is gone. Um, you know, Norman, this awful person like and even the cop who is um interrogating rosie says hey this this doesn't add up you know talking about like oh he he tracks you across the country comes in gets you cornered and then just decides to leave like yep okay well he's nuts yeah and my 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 favorite chapter in this entire book is uh just like the the monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday chronology yeah. of just the whole world forgetting about norman <laughs> yep as he as he falls off of the front page and then goes to the sixth and then eventually is gone forever yeah which yeah. is just perfect yeah i like that rose had the chops to i mean there's one moment where she looks into the painting that had done so much and she sees her sweater and the black motorcycle jacket that was bill's <laughs> yeah. and she decides to burn it anyway yeah. Like, I, I don't know that I would have the internal fortitude to <laughs> burn something that had made such a game. Like, what what if I needed it again? What if, yeah. I, especially like with the survivors, uh, what what if something happened with Bill and I needed Dorcas again? Or what if mm-hmm. I needed uh, Rose Matter again? Yeah. But they're gone. Well, I think the woman is yeah, in, the think, th- in the painting anymore. Yeah. I, I think that she had a sense that it wouldn't happen again. Yeah. At, at that point, it was just a reminder. Yeah. I guess you have to imagine in the drawing of the three that there's just a bunch of shut doors on a beach that a bunch of randos walk up to and they're like, what's this door about? <laughs> what, what what Home Depot asshole installed this here? It doesn't open. It doesn't do anything. I can only see it from one side. What a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be a really useful feature for a door. It's some Hogwarts hat shit. Yeah. No, you, you set it up. You from one side you can see through it and it's mm. uh it's it's just you know like nothing's there but then from the other side it's a door yeah i'd buy that <laughs> yeah it's like your own portable red lobster um <laughs> <laughs> that's funny in two ways <laughs> it, <laughs> but um better better put a coin in the lobster jar <laughs> oh no shit oh. not the lobster jar <laughs> but um i need to write that down because lobster jar would be a very funny design for a thing um, oh, it really would. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna write this for myself, and I'm gonna forget what it means. <laughs> Lob, in all caps, lobster jar. <laughs> you you I should think... just read, rename the Amazon link for the books to that. <laughs> just <laughs> that'd be pretty good. Help help pay for Cole not calling lobstrosities what they are. Um, 
<laughs> so the uh the 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 wisdom about uh the you know rabies and female and male foxes kind of comes back because you know rosie's uh kind of after effects from this are really bad she starts manifesting this rage you know she gets the rabies the you know whatever madness that uh that rose matter um exhibit you know she fans she fantasizes about hurling boiling water at bill or slamming her boss's head into the audio board and puncturing her eyes on the dials um all of those kind of stuff and it's only abated by her and bill having a daughter which she um which she names pam um and i was really worried that it was going to be like and she was the real monster after all <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> like yeah that would have bumped me out a lot yeah like you <laughs> You spent you spent so much time having her earn her independence and everything, and like I'm 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 very happy that it was there because it acknowledges an after effect of this horrible traumatizing experience that she had. I you I know. think that 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 does say a lot that this is the first time in her life that Rose has been allowed to feel actual experiences and get mad. I, I mean, it's like outside of it being the result of having some sort of. I don't know, maybe Dorcas and Rose Matter actually influencing her. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's just a regular person now who's not terrified and stymied and suppressed. I mean, like everybody thinks sometimes like about throwing boiling water on somebody, right? (laughs) I mean, Uh, I don't don't know. I was a spider baby, so I don't don't, don't know. Is this not Uh, something everyone thinks? I I mean, you're probably joking, but like I sometimes think about like what would happen if I picked up that phone and just slammed somebody across the face with it. Like you just get those intrusive thoughts about it, but you don't do anything with it. Isn't that the entire basis of the movie Office Space? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I think you're thinking of wanted. Also wanted. <laughs> you know, one day Rose is just going to stop going to the studio to record her audiobooks. I just stopped yeah. going. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Just uh. Man, hypnosis. I, I, I don't know. It's it's very late. <laughs> I don't know why to say yeah. hypnosis like it was a point. Um, it's a thing that happened in that movie. Um. No. So. Uh. So you know, like we get kind of this fast forwarded version of a little bit of the rest of her life, you know, as the kid grows up and things get better. Um, and it ends with you kind of acknowledging that she did remember the tree and she took the remaining seed out to where they had their secluded, you know, picnic lunch, um, beneath this den of another fallen tree and, you know, painted it and watches as this Fox kind of sticks around and it, turns from this little sprout into a sapling and a new growth you know and uh kind of becomes a new tree of death on our plane um either a a, you know a mirror of the tower or something else that has incredible talismanic power i think that i'm taking a lot of deadly premonition of video game and ascribing it to this which makes this feel incredibly foreboding i like that it's not explained Am I un? Is it unreasonable for me to be terrified of this development that Rose delivered this horrible thing onto our world? I don't think it's unreasonable. I also don't think that it's inherently terrifying or bad. It it kind of made me think of like like the the tree itself isn't a bad or evil thing. It's a necessity. Mm. Like it's something that just is and needs to be. And 
like the reason that Rose was having those rages was because there was that discord that the the tree in our plane had had died or collapsed and it needed to be replaced. Yeah. And yeah. so by by planting that and reestablishing that and reestablishing that connection, it kind of helped make her mind whole again. Yeah, it restored the uh, the symmetry. Yeah. And again, that that whole Charyu tree is about sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. And and she does she sacrifices like an hour or so of her time once a year, in order to make sure that you know nobody is stumbling on this tree, and also yeah. to make sure that uh, she remembers it and doesn't go crazy and kill everyone. It's also nice that that fox has something to do now that all of her kits are gone and her husband is dead of rabies. Yeah, <laughs> that, that fox that is almost assuredly an avatar of uh, of Rose Matter. Yeah. Hey, yeah. real real quick, just a random thought I had. Um, is there a fox at the end of any of the beams? No, no, no. Burden, bird, burden, hair, and something in fish. Bird and hair and. Yeah, no. I, I also checked to see if there was a bowl at the end of one of them, but no, there is not a bowl. Uh, that okay. is uh, that is guardian guardian of the beam. Okay. Yeah. That's mildly disappointing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's it's almost like he didn't know how he was going to finish the seventh book Ugh. in nineteen seventy eight. I mean, what, come on, dude! Wait, what an asshole! Come on, yeah. <laughs> Good garbage book. Um, <laughs> so let's do kind of our final thoughts on this because. It was thoroughly unpleasant at, at, at times to read this, um, but talking through it, you know, I think that there is a lot uh, to recommend this as like a really, uh, a really satisfying piece of fiction, right? Um, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. If, uh, oh, good. If you come into this as a Stephen King fan, you might be kind of disappointed because it doesn't really feel like a Stephen King book to me right. in a lot of ways. And it's it's not even really like it doesn't feel like a horror novel. It, it there is a lot of horrifying content, and Norman Daniels is one of the most absolutely terrifying characters I've ever come across in fiction. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really feel like horror at any point to me, mm. and. Um, I don't know. I I I I started out and and felt like it was moving really slow and was just very unpleasant, which it was. Uh but once it kind of starts to pick up steam and and Rose starts to become rosy and the 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 story really kind of comes together and starts moving forward, uh I couldn't put it down. No. Autumn, where'd you fall on? Similarly, I mean, it, it starts off with something that you think is going to be so off-putting that you're not going to be able to finish the novel. And it, I found it very, and it's kind of tried to say at this point, empowering. But I, I just love Rose's journey. I love the how scrappy she got. And again, at the end, where she's taunting her ex-husband, where she's so confident and she's like, Come and get me, bro. Come at me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is it it is fun. I feel like it deals with a lot of different emotions. We we talked briefly about what she felt at the end, where she was dealing with her own big full feelings of rage, irritation, and everything. I, I mean, I think the 
I'm surprised to hear because I, I actually have not read on writing, um, which is probably what I should skip to instead of book six and book seven. <laughs> I'm surprised to hear that he didn't like the novel because I almost feel like it's something to be proud of. I mean, it, it, it's cohesive start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the painting stuff, I mean, once you accept that conceit, it, 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 it it's, it's a complete novel and maybe he didn't like it as much as some other things. And I know I certainly opted not to read it at the time so maybe he's looking at its commercial success versus how he felt about it but mm-hmm. I, I i was surprised at how much i enjoyed it considering the subject matter it's yeah. it's probably one of my maybe top 10 which is saying a lot with somebody that has such a body of work yeah yep uh, you know definitely the biggest takeaway from this is going to be norman daniels for me um oh, Ro- yeah Ro- rose's journey is fantastic but i think that he steals the show um you could probably uh lobby a complaint that he is way too outsized and way too cartoonish i think he works specifically because of that yeah i think if he wasn't it would like the book would be borderline unreadable yeah i i think it tries ties back into what we were talking about earlier with the big bad wolf. I mean, the big bad wolf is cartoonish. He's not actually doing anything with red riding hood. Mm-hmm. I mean, and by the time you see him having eaten the grandmother and the whole family, I mean, he's just there being ominous and that creepy feeling of a monster coming at you and you not quite being able to see it like that. The, that's what's more scary than even the first 14 pages is him hunting Rose. Yeah. That is terrifying. In a way that I haven't found in any of the other books, besides maybe The Shining approaches it a little bit. Yeah, um, there's yeah, there, there, there's a little bit of shared DNA, I think, between uh, between uh, Jack and Norman. Um, I want to thank both of you, um, Autumn and Evan, for sticking around. This this episode ended up being ended up being way longer than I expected it to be, uh, and we're 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 pretty late in the evening, so I'm I'm grateful that you, that you have been generous with your time. Uh, and thanks to the listeners for kind of coming along on this ride. A lot of people. Um, we're also exposed to Rose Matter for the first time when we announced that we were uh, going to cover it. Um, and I hope that you got a lot out of it. Um, if you were scared off of it by the first 14 pages and you still listen to the episodes, hopefully we gave you the highlights. I would still say like, Hey, m- you know, maybe, maybe give it a shot. But I, I do not blame anybody for like kind of not having room for that in their lives. So um, yeah, and sorry, sorry for all the jokes and laughing. Uh, the subject matter is very much not funny, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how yeah. else to handle talking about this sort of thing. Sometimes, yeah, yeah it's a, it's it's a it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah I'm, I, I'm sure. I feel like I feel like most people will will understand and and <laughs> yeah, connect with that, but just. Yeah. Yep, and, if, and just I, being, I, I mean, being very I mean, clear, just in case. Sometimes you just want to put four on the floor and do the dog. <laughs> yep. Oh man, yeah. So, um, hopefully you've you've you, you've enjoyed it. We're going to be back uh, next episode with the beginning of the uh, of of the wastelands. Um, I, I'm not sure who's going to be on that episode, but uh, I know it's going to be fun because, boy, I love that book an awful lot. Um, yeah. Where can people find you on the internet, Autumn? I can be found on Twitter at at Mrs. Greer. That's M-I-S-S-U-S. And I have also been on two episodes of Brian Wade's Expanded Universe podcast, mm. where we discuss the Star Wars Expanded Universe series of books. <laughs> which uh, which particular books did you talk about? Um, I actually talked about books involving Darth Plagueis. 
okay. <laughs> who's my, who's my my new best friend? Um, because who doesn't like the dark side just a little bit? <laughs> of course. I mean, the the, the dark side's cooler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll put a link to that in the uh, in the in the notes here. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. And Evan, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Harder. That's M-I-S-T-E-R. Um, I'm also on Instagram at uh, Very Good Serial Reviews. It's a brand new thing that I'm starting up, and it is arguably the dumbest thing that I've ever undertaken, and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> uh, and it's it's going to get weird, so I, I hope that you'll look that up and follow along. Uh, also, I'm, you know, kind of intermittently scattered around on the, the duck feed network yeah cool and you can find me on other shows at duckfeed.tv uh we are um doing some exciting stuff that we're getting ready to announce here fairly soon um so hopefully you are around for that uh you can also find me on twitter at cole ross that is k-o-l-e-r-o-s-s and if you like this show please um share it with your friends who uh, maybe like Stephen King or, you know, maybe listen to podcasts and are looking to get into something new. Um, and uh, rating a review on iTunes is always uh, tremendously helpful. Uh, we hope to see you in uh, season three uh, to talk about the wastelands. But until next time, long days and pleasant nights. Duckfeet.tv forward slash lobster jar. Ha, 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 ha.